Hey everybody, welcome to the Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right, for this particular episode, what I'm doing is I'm taking the audio from both Instagram Live sessions that I did with Jay Scott of Jay Scott Outdoors. Uh, so Jay Scott and I did a couple of Instagram Live sessions on his Instagram page, one at the beginning of August, one, uh, well, about 10 days ago, well, maybe a week ago, I don't know, a little while ago. So, uh... He put so obviously if you caught that Instagram live session, great. You you got all this information. If you didn't, uh, you could go back and he put these on his podcast, so you could listen to them there. And they are split into two you know two distinct podcast episodes for on his page. But uh, for my page, what I did is I just went ahead and combined them. So we're going to be sitting at a little over three hours, about three hours and six minutes of content. And I went through and I edited all of it to just pull out every ounce of extraneous you know banter that was going on originally and condense this down to the smallest I could which was a little over three hours of questions and answers you you folks sent in questions and Jay and I dove in and answered them Um, there is an absolute mammoth amount of information in this particular episode and so that's why I, I was originally thinking about splitting it into two, but knowing that many of you will be driving across country or at least having a couple hours or a few hours drive to wherever you're going to go elk hunt, I decided just to go ahead and leave it as the full three-hour uh, compilation of everything we talked about. Again, there is a monstrous amount of information covered here. However, if you are listening to this before you leave... Uh, we've got in many areas we you know so it's August 25th right now that I'm trying to get this uploaded to you um, there's some people that are not going to leave for their elk hunt for several days if not a few weeks now if you truly want to understand the fundamentals and, and the basis behind why I believe what you know what I why I believe what I believe why I call the way I do the foundations that I talk about in here and and why Sometimes I sound like a broken record on my strategies and, and what I, you know, how I call and how I set up. Folks, just get on, go to www.rowhuntingresources.com. Sign up for the Elk Hunting Institute, the Elk Module. All right, it's tw- you can sign up for the $25 three-month deal. There's a pile of information in there, but it's going to look overwhelming, but it's not. You, you've got plenty of time to dive in and truly understand elk behavior. Why do elk do what they do on the landscape? And how do you use that information to make yourself a more efficient caller? And then go dive into some of the elk vocalizations I talk about in there. We've got massive amounts of information in there about elk vocalizations, but just dive into just the targeted strategy if you want. Understand why I repeatedly talk about not playing to testosterone, at least to start. No matter where I am, no matter what pressure situation, no matter what period of the of September I'm dealing or early October I'm dealing with, or for those of you that are hunting uh, Utah right now, whether we're talking about hunting in August, September, October, or November, I don't care. If we're going to use a calling strategy, there is a reason, a, a very fundamental behavioral reason why I employ the strategies that I do. And, and I, the reason why you hear me in this next, this upcoming bit of content here, why I sound like a broken record. You know, there's some people that want to criticize me and they're like, oh, well, you're, you only talk about the same thing. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I talk about the same thing that the elk do, the same thing all year long, from January to March to May to August to September to November to December. To December. It doesn't matter. Elk are doing certain things. That's what I am doing, at least to start. So, yeah, if you're interested in learning more about, obviously, this is a free podcast. I'm, I'm putting this out there. We did it, the Instagram Live uh, on Jay's site. It was free. You could watch, you could listen to it there. It's free on Jay's podcast if you want to listen to it there, and it's free here. But if you truly want to dive into some of these, these concepts and truly understand the why behind it all so that way you can be as dynamic as you need to be on the landscape when new situations present themselves or you know challenges whether all of a sudden a different bull enters the mix or a bull's got cows now or maybe some other hunters show up and they screw the pooch on you and they mess some things up if you need to make a dynamic shift on what you're doing or what you're dealing with if you don't understand the why of what some of this stuff is it doesn't matter and that's kind of the, the point and the reason why I want to just keep hammering this home, the difference between what you're going to hear in a lot of other places and what you, what I spend the bulk of my time doing and talking about is the why. Why do elk do what they do? Why are they saying what they're saying? Why do I u- utilize certain principles and, and vocalizations? And why do I hold certain beliefs and opinions? If you understand that, you're going to be a more easily adaptable to changing conditions on the landscape. And in my opinion, you're going to be a much, much more efficient caller out in the field. So enough of an introduction. Let's dive in. Here is the complete audio from both Instagram live sessions with Jay Scott of Jay Scott Outdoors. Forget it. <laughs> I've been sitting here doing a, a solo comedy tour here for uh, five minutes. Um, uh, How's that going for you? Oh, not too great, actually. But uh, to answer a question, Zach, Zach wanted to know how big the Ot Six Ranch is. Uh, it's fifty thousand acres deeded. Um, here's a question: If Southern Colorado stays pretty green, what elevations uh, that you'll think the elk will push to in early season? Super high or tenish? Chris, we might as well start right with this question from Leo Jones. Um, if it stays green, like, I mean, it's raining right now outside, and you're, um, I should say, you are in Colorado yourself doing some some uh, row ecological resources work, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and you can fill us out on that. But what do you think, if it stays green like it is, wh- where are the elk going to be? What elevation? I think they're going to, I, I'm not even going to be concerned about, well, Okay, so there's a lot of different habitats in Colorado, like you know. And so there's some areas that have high alpine stuff. And then there's some areas that literally the highest part of the mountain is 9,000 feet. Um, I think in those areas where elk have access to alpine, I think you will see some of those animals going there and staying there simply because it's cooler. Uh, I mean, they're laying on fat. They're getting their winter coat starting to come in. So I think they're going to a lot of times they're going to try to stay with that cooler temperatures, but also bugs. You can get up there and get away from the insects, and if there's ample food and water up there, they'll stay. But quite honestly, I think the, the biggest factor to where the elk are going to go is, at this point, with all the water that most areas are seeing from the bottom of the mountain to the top, they've got food and water everywhere. So they're going to go where they have the best sanctuary, best safety. 
So just because you're seeing elk in high country basins right now, if you've got 20 mule deer hunters that pile into that that thing, well, are the elk going to stay right? Th- no, they're not. You know, they could go up and over the ridge because there's plenty of food and water up high, or they could just tip right down the mountain and drop down. So, I, you know, this, and if you don't mind, I had a question come in, um, oh, with Sterling Debner in a similar question. He was one with this with this Colorado moisture. You know, is it going to affect the rut? Number one, and or how will it affect the rut? And he was asking about. Okay, so what about wallows? Do you do you even hunt wallows? And I see your face, and I see you shaking your head. You know as darn well as I do. Okay, let's. If we're just talking about wallows, the hotter, the drier it is, those wallows become just magnets because it's the only place they're getting water, and they can cool off and get away from bugs. But when you literally have rainstorm after rainstorm every afternoon and it's cold and wet and there's water everywhere, man, they don't have to hit a particular wallow in it, you know, day in and day out. They'll still probably use them a little bit just to get themselves stinky. But that's really about it. Unless you've got those, you know, Jay, on yours, you've got both uh, stock tanks and then you've got the, the stock pond type of deal. And I've always advocated, you know, and people in Arizona know this all the time as well. If, if an elk has a chance to, to wallow around in a dirt tank, in a, in a big pond, they that's will do Yeah, that's what they want. It's not because of just, well, there's water there. And it's not just because, well, there's mud there and I can, I can get wallowed up. They can actually find water and they can find mud other places. But when Social. we're talking about, there you go, bingo, you nailed it. So when we're talking about the rut, we're talking about bulls with cows. It becomes a social place. And so that is kind of what I would, I, if you find a wallow that's tucked right smack dab, like way back up into a bedding area, okay, that'd be a great midday set if you can, if the, if the uh, wind is going to allow it. But if you felt that you just wanted to try to hunt water, maybe you're not a good caller, maybe you don't have as much mobility, quite honestly, at this point, Maybe the little tiny wallows aren't where you go. Maybe you, you look for those larger, in it, whether it's a beaver pond, whether it's just a big wet area or whatever, where the elk can have a social um, interaction. And as far as the rut goes, you know, that, you know, Jay, you know, on the website, my the elk uh, module on the website, I've got an eight-part series on just what causes, what, what affects the elk rut and the relevant part of this one when we're talking about moisture and food availability the only thing that that's going to do is is allow those cows to cycle in on their normal time frame you know so if if they if they normally on on average cycle in say september 19th having high body fat right now is going to allow them to cycle normally but all the other things i talk about you know whether she has a calf at her side whether she's bonded with cows, whether she's in the presence of a mature bull, if that mature bull has been there for an ex, you know, extended period of time, all those other factors can affect when that cow is going to cycle. But when we're talking about moisture this year, it's just going to allow them to cycle on their normal routine. Chris, a question kind of parlaying this into some other questions we have and going back to something that we talked about. Um, you used to talk about hunting your high country camp in Colorado, OTC, and you always talk about there's a time that you really like to hunt, which was the, the, the latter part of August. Now with the season um, starting, 
I believe September 2nd, uh, you, you don't necessarily get that time frame. My question would be, and it kind of goes back to this other guy's question is, what specifically in the high country made them come from above Timberline and get out of Timberline? I always say like it's the first frost, something about it, they just move out of there. But what, in your mind, you had a you when you could hunt in August. You had about a five to seven day window when you had all your elk up high, yep. and then the bulls they left. Talk about that. I think it's multifaceted. I think it depends on exactly what basin we're talking about. But you know, you hear somebody, you know, people talk, and I've talked about it for years about that pre rut move. Um, you, so in the summer, you're going to have those elk on the high country, and and again. Folks that are listening to this that don't hunt in alpine areas, there's going to be similarities to the behavior, but it may be less it may be less dictated by elevation. Okay, so it's going to be habitat. So you know, it, down in southern Colorado, in some places, well, heck, Jay, even on maybe on the Ot Six Ranch in places, it, do they have access to above timberline stuff? Yes, but do they have a lot of low lying stuff as well? Yes they move across your landscape and they will separate. So the bulls are summering in one area, the cows and calves are going to be in, in another area. As that summer progresses and the, and the bulls go hard horned, they're going to, you know, they're, uh, let's just talk about the high country. They're going to be in the high country. They're going to be separated a little bit. So the cows and calves are going to be in one area. The bulls are going to be somewhere nearby off adjacent basins or something, whatever. As they go hard horned and they start to, the bulls start to make their way to those cow calf groups there's going to be a lot of interspecific competition. They're going to try to be getting their pecking order figured out. They're going to be going over there. They're going to be displaying. They're going to be walking in and around the cow-calf groups. They're going to be displaying for those females. They're going to be letting them know, you know, their body size matters and, and their confirmation and their confidence and in uh, their entire persona matters on cows choosing those bulls. And so they get into that high country and they start to mingle with those cows. However, Cows will start to bust themselves out into little groups as well. And so you start to see where those bulls, there's a little bit of competition. They're vying for cows. Those cows want to start to split up. And quite honestly, sometimes they've just learned that as soon as August comes, so do the people. So therefore, I need to move down into the timber where it's safe. Other times they learn there's a bunch of cows here. I have my group of cows. The longer I stay out exposed, the more likelihood another bull is going to come in and try to challenge me and try to try to you know push me out and, and take my. I'm just going to take my cows and we're going to go down into the timber where I can disappear with my ladies. Now, and I said that specifically because there's a lot of people that that's what they believe. The bull comes in, the bull takes the cows, the bull pushes them down the mountain to protect them. Yes, Jay. I'm, I, see, I love your face. You're like me. You, you, there was a meme the other day that says, I don't need a mood ring because I have a face. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, no. The cows are the ones that choose the bull. And the cow, think about your daily lives. If you're married, who's running the, the daily activity <laughs> schedule for, for your family? It ain't you. Let's just put it that way. You have, you have an input. You can suggest. And if your suggestion's good, she'll follow but if it's not, she just overrides you, and you're like, well, that was that was nice, honey, but we're going to do this, okay? Same thing with elk. The, the cows choose the bull that they want to bond with. 
the cows are the ones oftentimes that are going to be like from a safety standpoint, from a, from a sh- cows don't like to be harassed. And so if they have a very large, mature bull that absolutely can defend that group and keep all the riffraff away, okay, well then fine. Maybe we defer to him because he can keep us safe. But in many of these over-the-counter areas, we don't have that age class. We have a two-and-a-half-year-old or three-and-a-half-year-old bull that might be with those cows. He does not. Not only does he not have the ability to, quote-unquote, adequately defend, really, most of the time he's acting like a stupid teenager, and he's pushing the cows around constantly anyway. So the cows will take them out of those vulnerable situations and tuck themselves down into some of these gnarly little pockets simply because the cows don't want to deal with the crap. They've already had to settle for a a younger age class bull that they probably don't care for anyway, but that's the best that they've got around them. So fine. Come on. We're going down here. We're going to go back down the mountain. We're going to find a little place to tuck ourselves into. Stay away from all the conflict. Stay away from all the riffraff until I get bred. I don't care about anybody else. I want to get bred. And then once I get bred, yeah, you guys can do what you want. So there was a couple different reasons in my high country camp. I think it was they learned behavior from uh, from previous people pressure. But more importantly, that's I, every year I watched it happen. They were up in that al- that alpine basin. And, you know, those years where the season started August 25th, you'd have multiple bulls, multiple cow-calf groups. And you could get in there, and the, the bulls weren't, you know, paired up. I mean, you could you could actually do something. But as soon as it was like August twenty seventh to 29th, they're they're making the move, and by September first, they there you you'd be hard pressed to find a, uh, an elk in that basin. Specific question: Did you notice on dry years when it when it, when it was dry and the vegetation above Timberline was not as good? Compared to when it's wet and vegetation above Timberline is very good, did you see a correlation of maybe they stayed later, maybe they left earlier? Can you talk a little bit about, like on this year, in most of Colorado is very wet. In Montana, it's very dry. Can you talk about a correlation of wet and dry, and did they stay later or did they leave earlier? Okay, so I did a video. It's It's on the elk module, and I talk about basically looking at a mountain like a sponge if you if you took a big giant triangular sponge if you're constantly sprinkling water onto the top of the sponge that sponge is going to get saturated from the tippy tippy top all the way down to the bottom but if you just turn off that faucet what's going to happen with that water it's slowly going to just settle and it's going to fall down that you know off the peak and so that peak of the sponge is going to start to dry out especially with the wind blowing on and everything else it's going to dry out before the bottom does and you can see that a lot of times with in dry years with the alpine where you look up there and all of a sudden like man it's end of august but i'm seeing yellows and golds and and oranges and and it's like yeah yeah it's the forage quality starts to drastically decrease well if they have the option of choosing better forage in some other place a lot of times they will and so oftentimes i've seen they actually will come down out of that uh, high country into some of those lower areas that have better uh, moisture and better feed quality now with that being said if they get bumped and disturbed excessively down lower it's not uncommon for them to say screw it i'm for safety standpoint i'm going back up to where i have a little bit you know i've got more options for safety and I'll just deal with a little bit uh, lesser quality food. But, yeah, no, if, if it's a dry year, I, I will always hunt 
where the water is and where the better forage is, and then I will branch out from there and try to find them. I'm going to go to where I think they should be, and then I will branch out to tr- see if I can track them down. Got a question here. What should an eastern hunter do if their area was burnt? Move or will elk be back in such a large burn? And he's talking about the Pine Gulch area. So mm-hmm. his area was burned. He wants to know if he moves or will the elk be back? Does uh, I, And this is a question that I don't have the answer to. How bad did that fire burn? Was it a... Right. Was it a so let's go through the scenarios and talk about whether it just moonscaped burned it or if it yeah. mosaic burned and left some timber. I would say that, you know, depending on when the burn was, and I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the pine gulch burn, um, but I would say usually about, if, if we had a, a burn last summer, I would say it's good to move in there this summer. I've seen burns where you have it and a month later elk and stuff really start moving back in but usually my idea is that first year after the burn when you start getting that fresh green growth that's when the elk will really flock in there chris what do you think yeah so there's actually been some research on this as well and quite honestly jay um i'm going to pitch this one to you you have a really good network of outfitters uh friends that are down in arizona that they hunt a broad area. There was some research done in Starkey research area up in Washington, and they looked at the the timing of not. I mean, how would I put it? They would have a burn. They would do a prescribed burn on the the research area, and then they looked over the course of years when elk came back, and more importantly, what elk came back. Were the did the cows come in first? Did the bulls come in first? Was it uh, September, you know, uh, fall feeding time when the elk came in, or were they usually, u- or were they using that burn actually better in the spring and the summer? What I would pitch to you, Jay, is maybe give this would be. I'm I'm genuinely from a research standpoint, genuinely interested. You ought to pull together some of your outfitters that have hunted in some of the Arizona areas that have burned, and then ask them, oh, because they've been there for years. What did they see? What was the change? Number one, how soon after the burn did they come? A, how intense was the burn? Okay, because you're absolutely right. If we look at what goes on in the Kayabab, uh down in Unit 9 and in some of those other areas, in, in Coconino, all the, Arizona has an awesome forest management practice down there. They do a lot of... of uh, comparatively. Co- co- oh, yeah, comparatively. They do a lot of prescribed burns. So most of the burns that they're dealing with down there are light to moderate severity. And most of the time they're going to be light severity. So you know as well as I do that elk, the elk come right back in. You you yeah. put some moisture on it, the elk come right back and in. And that's, that's the key, I think, with anything is put moisture on it and make it yes. come back very, very quickly. It, especially in a light to moderate burn intensity area now when we start going in that really high intensity burn where it just it sterilizes the soil and it turns into a moonscape that's going to take years to jump back now number one a lot of brushy species will oftentimes come in first like your your gooseberry and choke cherries and that that type of stuff uh serviceberry mountain mahogany some of those those brushy species will often oftentimes come in first the forest service will also also oftentimes come over with aerial uh, seeding and they'll throw in species of grass 
and Forbes and such that oftentimes have a good root mass. Now, that doesn't mean that they're the highest quality elk forage on the mountain, but they're there to stabilize the soil and stabilize the ash layer. Now, what that means to me is oftentimes when you have those more intensity burns that get moisture on it that bounce back into more shrubby component, oftentimes they can be really good winter areas because that's the type of forage that elk are going to be looking for later on in the winter. Whereas in those light to moderate burn areas where you get some water on it and those cool season grasses and forbs just it just erupt and jump back and maybe aspen shoots start coming back, well, that's just great forage anytime. And so, yes, when you're talking about the rut, if you've got elk in and around those areas, absolutely you could have good uh, activity during the fall. But what you said in the beginning, Jay, I think is important, mosaic. If you have, you know, like I said, so yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, you're you're absolutely right. Starkey's in Oregon. I said Washington, didn't I? Sorry, I was thinking about Washington on something else. Sorry, yeah, you're right, Oregon. Thanks for keeping um, us honest, guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's the beautiful thing about <laughs> these things because there's interaction. So yes, so Citadel Rick, you said it's the largest in Colorado history. Exactly. Okay, I do remember that. The question is, is are we talking about this person's hunt area was right smack dab in the middle? of the massive, you know, high-intensity, monotypic, you know, burn? Well, if that's the case, go find another spot. However, right. the, the, the spring, I think he's talking about the spring gulch. He said pine gulch, but the one that down pretty close to the Ot 6 Ranch, I mean, we can see places it's burned, and it's, I mean, it, it moonscaped it. I mean, yeah. burned it to pieces. Yeah, if that's the case, then uh, I'm going to either relocate to another area or what? at the very minimum, I'm going to relocate to the edges of it. And quite honestly, there's there are good resources within the Forest Service uh, that you can get a hold of the guys, especially just pick up the, the regional Forest Service office that handles that area and say, hey, do you guys have an updated what your fire intensity map was for that burn and, and what the re- reclamation uh management plan has been so far and talk to them and find out where those light intensity and moderate intensity burn areas were where was the mosaic pattern on that fire if there was one you know they'll be able to steer you in a good direction but i'm going to be looking for those areas that that burned at a light maybe moderate intensity that have that mosaic that patchwork of habitat because if you have that and you have the moisture that we have this year Absolutely. I have a feeling that you're going to have some really good potential to have elk activity in there. Now, with that said, there's a you're asking you're asking the question on a public forum about hunting a burn. You want to know how many other hunters focus on and gravitate towards hunting a burn area? A lot. So just because it might be really good potential elk hunting, do not for a second think you're going to go in there and not run into a bunch of hunters because it, it is a magnet for elk and deer just as it is a magnet for other hunters yeah for sure uh steven vasquez uh 03 uh any point in scouting for an elk hunt now if you've already hired a great guide what is that so mean? My answer, so it sounds like he's hired a guide and he wants to know if he should go do his own scouting. Um, as a guide myself, um, I think it's fine if the client wants to go scout and, you know, go look around and they may find, you know, a bunch of elk or find a specific bull. But one of the challenges, as personally speaking, from, a, from my perspective, being a guide is when you have a hunter that's out scouting in the summer 
and our hunt is in the rut, and then they come and say they found a 400-inch bull, and they show me the video, and I'm like, yeah, that's a great bull, um, but do you realize that that bull's probably going to be in a different unit in September? So where I'm going with that is, yes, it's fine to do your own scouting, and maybe you would do some good. Maybe you would find a bull that the guide then could then both together tag team and try and stay on that bull. But you also have to understand that you've hired a guide for a reason, and the reason is you've hired him to help you get on elk and and get the job done. If you are the type of client that is going to show up and say, well, what are you seeing? Uh, You know, I saw these bulls, you know, two weeks ago, and we need to be over here. Well, now you're dictating where the guide is going to hunt. A lot of times, and Chris, you can attest to this, uh, guiding in Unit 9 and guiding in Arizona is, Guides have areas that they really like to hunt. They like, they know the country. They know the flow of the bulls. They know how the cows move. They know how the pressure of other people. And so when you get a situation where a hunter is starting to kind of, you know, maybe second guess the guide, that's not a good situation. So I would give you the advice, you know, if you hired a guide, know that you should have done your research and picked a great guide. And so any scouting that you would do would maybe just be subsequent scouting and trying to enjoy your hunt and then put it on the guide and say, here's a bull I found. I can stay on him and you continue to scout your country. Um, Chris, your thoughts? No, you're, yeah, all of that is, is good. And, and I like what you said is, you hired a guide for their expertise and that individual, like you said, it now, if that, if that, okay, there are some outfitters that you will book a hunt through an outfitter. And then that outfitter goes and finds a warm body just to go hike around the mountainside with you. So I don't know if that's the case with your outfitter, but even if that's the case, most of the time, the outfitters have history in these areas. And even if they just hire a warm body that's never been there, the outfitter's going to meet you, sit down with them prior and say, okay, you guys need to go over this drainage on this bench because this is a little bench over here. This is a, there's, there's knowledge there that has played out in their favor year after year after year. And so lean on that and trust it because you go in with your perceived, your, your preconceived um, ideas on what you see and what, like you said, Jay, you nailed it. What you see now is not necessarily what's going to happen in September. And just because, oh, there, that saddle over there looks awesome. Well, yeah, it it does. It It's beautiful. It looks great. And yes, do elk cross that saddle? Yes, they do. But that's in August because they're over here now. Yeah, but that saddle, we need to go over there. And, I mean, Jay, like we, we joked about it before. I had that one client that, uh, his buddy was pissed off at me in unit nine Arizona was just torqued thought I didn't know I didn't know my rear end from my my elbow because quote well I hadn't gone out in unit nine and located all those little hidden springs in in those little natural springs where the where the water you know where the elk would be I'm like there there are no there are no springs you know, I mean, just like just because you you go into an idea, you heard something online of this is what I need to see, doesn't necessarily mean that area has that component, and that you can exploit that component at the time while you're in there. So if you want to, and then the other thing too that that makes me nervous, if this is public ground, 
and if it's a remote area, man, just let it be. Don't disturb it. You already you've you're paying somebody their expertise. They already know it. So don't you go in and put your scent in there and blow bump elk and move this that and that. Don't just. How about this? You 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 hire the guy or gal or whatever. If you want to scout and get an idea of the lay of the land, then okay, hike up the trails that you're going to use. Maybe hike up on a, a high point, just kind of get a lay of the land and just see how you handle that elevation and how you handle that terrain, how you handle the slopes and everything. Can you move? Can you? Is, is it is it is it going to be doable for you? And then I would just get the heck out, you know, because yeah, like you said, what you see now is not necessarily what's going to be seen. Uh, later in September. And Jay, if you don't mind, I saw a, a, a comment pop up there and it's similar to one of my other ones is, you know, is there any point to scouting now? You know, really, does it matter to scout now? What do you, what is your thought on scouting now? Well, before I get into scouting now, I do have a, a saying, it's get in, hang on, shut up and let's go. <laughs> get, get in, sit out, shut up, and hang on, and let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one guide in this camp, and that's me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. That's right. And I don't mean that as a jerk, but you've hired me, and now we're going to do it my way, and we're going to live yeah. and die by the sword. We're going to do it my way. We're going to make some mistakes, but probably at the end of the hunt, it's going to work out good if, if we just keep going and do it the way yeah. I like. And trust, trust your outfitter. Yep. Right. So whoever you hired, you obviously did a bunch of research. Now just get in, sit down, hang on, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but scouting you now, would you, what, what, oh, you scouting now. So, I mean, in Arizona, speaking specifically about Arizona, what I find, and then I'll talk about the Odd Six Ranch. When you're talking summertime, most of the bulls move anywhere from 15 to 30 miles. There are some bulls that will stay within a mile of where they are all summer, but I think it's a very small percentage. In Arizona specifically, I would say the majority of the bulls would move at least 10 miles to a, to a totally different area than they spend in the summer and rut in a completely different pocket. I know... There was a couple bulls, big giant bulls that were up on the park in Unit 9. We all know these same, you know, legendary bulls. And they're getting shot at 35 miles away in the lower part of 7 West. And for 20 years, I guided public land in Arizona. And I saw that over and over and over and over. So what I normally would say is your scouting gets real important if if it's one thing to learn the unit, but when you start scouting and looking at bulls that you're trying to shoot when the season starts, September 1st was about that time frame from right then till the season started when it was the most important time to be in the unit. The whole time knowing that you could find a bull in that first week of September and he's still in his summer ground and he still could make a big move. So that was always a challenge for me is getting, I always got there, started scouting on September 1st, and I found a few good bulls, and some of them stayed. Some of them moved a little ways because they were already in their movement, and then some of them just were gone. And I'd find them, you know, in the completely different part of the unit, or 
a buddy would be in another unit, send me a text of, hey, check out this great bull. And I'm like, that's the one I saw two days ago. So scouting in the summer is phenomenal. It gets people fired up and excited about, you know, seeing the bulls and seeing the velvet and seeing, you know, how big a bulls they are. Taking kind of inventory of antler growth and what have you. But about September 1st is when you really start pinpointing you know, elk that you're probably going to be hunting. Same goes with the Ot6 Ranch. I mean, we run trail cameras all summer, and those bulls, they move, they show up, they, you know, they, they're, they're not just, some of them are, some of them basically stay in the same 500-yard or 1,000-yard circle their whole life, but most of them come from a long ways away. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. In the high country, if you're talking about just some of the high country units, same thing. You, I mean, it, they may just be going basin to basin, but you know, you're like, oh well, that that other basin's only a, a mile or two from here. Okay, uh, on on a on a map it is, but when you're talking about how much they're, I mean, they're, you know, the terrain features and and the ground they're covering is incredible. And the the thing that I wanted to clarify because I know a lot of people say this to me and, and have asked, they're like. Well, yeah, I mean, of course they're going to move if they need to go find cows. No. They're in Grand Canyon National Park walking through the entire Unit 9, which is a big unit, to go to whoops, to go to Unit 7 West. They are walking through thousands of cows. It's, it's not about that they're trying to find a cow. A lot of times they just know where they can be safe and they've survived and they've done well from a reproductive standpoint. And so they go back to those areas where they feel comfortable and they will find cows there. So and they're it's gonna a territorial make... thing, too. I yes. mean, I see bulls on the same rubbing on the same trees that they rubbed the year before. It's a territorial yeah. thing. I'm convinced of it. Um, let's jump here to a question. Quest, Quest AZ, when bulls are bugling, how tight do you get in before you attempt to call? So I try and get in as close as I possibly can. And if I can get in and put my binoculars on them at, you know, 70, 80 yards before I call, that's what I'm going to try and do. My success of calling a bull into what I would call bow range goes way up when I can get into that under 100 yards before I even make a sound. So if, if, if. If I had my preference, I would not even make a sound until I got 80 or 90 yards. And if I could get 60, I would get 60. I can't tell you how many times I've been able, they've been bugling. I've been able to weasel my way in, weasel my way in, and I don't make a sound until they're 50 yards and they come right over. Well, you only have to close 20 or 30 yards and they're at 20 or 30 yards. So... Fight the urge to call your way into bulls. Um, I was talking with Steve Chapel about it on a podcast a couple episodes ago. Curious your thoughts uh, on, on that as well, Chris. Yeah, same thing. I mean, obviously, the habitat that you're in is going to make a big difference. You know as darn well as I do. In Unit 9, in the big timber, in the big pines, good luck getting in within 200 and some odd yards of them sometimes because it's just wide open. But will I get in there and set up and give it a go? Heck, yeah, I'll give it a go. But if I can be down, if you're talking about down in the PJ country or if I'm down in southern Colorado in that oak brush country and there's a bull talking, 
oh, heck yes, I'm going to try to get myself in there as close as possible. Now, granted, I will, I will caveat this with, it also depends on how you're calling. There's so many people that want to jump to an aggressive style calling strategy that, yes, if you, if, if you are going to employ an aggressive calling strategy, especially if you're going to be using bull vocalizations and bugles, you start bugling and calling and getting aggressive at several hundred yards and then you're working your way in, I, can, I will bet strong money. You're just going to push them. You're just going to be pushing them and following them across the landscape. However, if you get in close, like right in their back pocket, and then you jump into whatever strategy you want, now you might be able to elicit that instinctual response where they have to react and have to come engage you before they get their, their cows out of there. However, Jay's talked about has his calling style, and you darn well, anybody at this point knows my calling strategy and my, my philosophy. If I'm acting as though I'm a cow or cow with calves and there is no bull with me, I'm not giving any bull vocalizations, and I'm using the base core fundamental vocalizations that I'll use, those lost muse and assembly muse, I can get away with calling on my way to them to keep them talking and keep them pinpointing because it actually makes sense that I would be seeking them because that they, they're responding to me and it makes sense that they would be moving that way. And it helps me when we're talking thick cover, it helps me hone in on where I need to be and how I can work that wind to my advantage. So yeah, I, I will always default to getting as close to that animal. If I can pinpoint him and I can, I know exactly where he is. I'm going to default by trying to get as absolutely physically close to possible as I can before calling. But if it's thick, and he's only talking sparingly, and I don't have a real good fix on him, how you call can actually give you some flexibility on touching base with him and moving in on that that animal. So, Next question here. How would you go about doing a three- to four-man group with one caller? Personally, I would have two shooters out in front, have the other guy back with me, and he's out of the game. Have your two shooters out in front have communication ahead of time as to maybe who's shooting first or who has preference. But if this guy has a better shot, have communication ahead of time. Uh, and then always remember that that bull is going to try and come in and get your win. So the, as the caller, you want to try and draw that bull and you want to be calling upwind so that that bull, when he swings, he doesn't swing too far around and doesn't give either of the two shooters a shot. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yep. Okay. How do you see the rut being in Arizona this year with all the moisture they've gotten but coming off such a bad drought? Chris, let you hit that first. Um, I, And you and I have talked about this before, Jay. A lot of times – so you, you you got two things. Well, I guess he's asking about the rut. It's all going to be on forage quality. What, 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 is the, what does the food look like? It, I, you know, down in Arizona, okay, here's a question to you, pitching it to you, Jay. When did the rains actually start hitting? It's been in the past few weeks, hadn't it, or did it start back in early July? So it depends on the eastern part of the state. It started early. It started at the end of June. Okay. And, and the eastern part of the state is just blown up, had incredible rains. That My buddies tell me the feed is waist high. It's as good as it can get. Go. 
There you nine, go. nine and ten. Ten is better than nine, but nines really come on. But nine, even you know, into around July first, was not that great. So, body condition, depending on the unit that you were in, in in nine, it was not good. It's rebounded and they've come on pretty good. Uh, ten is better. Eastern part of the state, central around Flag, is is, is great. Um, but nine is very marginal, uh, but it, it's greened up. But I tend to think the antlers are going to be affected because they were in very poor condition prior to the rains. In well, the eastern part of the state, I think they'll be pretty darn good. Uh, in Unit 10, I think they'll be pretty darn good as far as antlers. Um, not fantastic, but uh, pretty good. From in what you – I was – you nailed it as far as your what you said about the body condition. That's that's kind of what I was looking at is, so if you're in those areas that have a little bit higher elevation, maybe some aspen stands and that type of stuff, you, you can have a component of your vegetation, your grass vegetation and your forbs that are considered more cool season forages. They respond to cooler temperatures, but they respond to moisture very well. And so if all of a sudden you pour the moisture on, they start growing. doesn't matter. They, they'll start growing. If they start growing, the nutritional quality of that range condition goes up. The body condition of the cows is probably going to be good. However, like you said, Jay, when unit nine, now we can get up into the pine area up there, but even in the pine area, a lot of the vegetation understory is blue grandma, grandma grass. That is a warm season grass that grows in the summer. If it has, it, it just grows in the summer period. It, it, and so if the moisture came on while that grass was actively trying to grow and put a seed head up, then it will green up and it will grow. But if that moisture, because it's, it's going to do something. Sometimes it grows 18 inches tall. Sometimes it only grows 8 inches tall. And sometimes it grows 2 inches tall and throws a seed head because there's just no moisture. But as soon as that grass throws a seed head, it's done growing, period. It's, at this point, it's just putting resources into the root system down below. So... In those areas where the rain, if you're in an area that has good, cool season grasses and the rain came out, the forage has gone way up. In those areas where you have warm season grasses predominantly, yes, it might green up a little bit, but I have a feeling you're going to be hard-pressed. to see. It, It's probably going to be slower to increase that body condition of those cows, and that's, that's the driver right there. The body condition of the cows dictates when they cycle, largely other than those other factors I talked about a little while ago. So if the forage is turning green and the cows are getting good food and they can make up that, that previous early season deficit, they'll be good to go. Yeah, and I've heard uh, New Mexico's in most places is phenomenal. Most of Colorado's phenomenal. Arizona, I think Nevada's pretty darn good. Uh, reports in Montana are a little sketchy. They're, they're having pretty dry up there. Parts of northern Idaho, I think, are pretty dry as well. Uh, got a question here. Is it? Uh, it's the rut, or is the rut triggered by light? Talk a little bit about that photosynthesis uh, whole that whole thing. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm not going to try to be a jerk, but I'm going to re- I'm going to ref- refer people back over to the, the website. There's an eight part series on that. So yes, the photo period is the driver of hormones. Okay, that is what's going to drive the hormones of those animals. Now. Whether or not those hormones flip the switch and the, and the cow goes into estrus is based on, and, and when, if 
and when she goes into estrosis based on a whole bunch of things. Yes, photo period is the driver of the hormones, and no, moon phase does not statistically have anything to do with it. Okay, so just skip the moon phase as far as a rough discussion goes. After the photo period triggers the hormones to flow the, to the level that they need, after that, it's all about body condition, calf, uh, presence or absence of calf, bonding with cows, mature bull around them, length of time that the bull's been around them, etc. Um. Monty, Monty's reporting in from Unit 9, saying Unit 9 is extremely green, was in the triangle last night. Uh, even the well camp looks like a green carpet. Uh, of, all, of, of, of all the years, I might not be down. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe I might need to try, change my... I think the rut's going to be fantastic in Arizona. I think the antler growth in other than the eastern part of the state, I think it's just going to be average. Um, we got a question here. Are calf sounds the way to go, or is there scenarios that mature cow sounds are necessary? That's that's a big one. Yeah, and I know. So, in other words, what he listened to was another podcast that had Joel Turner on it that now is all of a sudden talking about calf sounds. And So, yeah, I mean, again, if you, if you are a subscriber to Row Hunting Resources Elk, module you've seen where i've for years i've talked about the difference between mature cow sounds and and calf vocalizations and and why calf vocalizations can be so good i did i and now i've done i don't know how many seminars for ise and other places and the entire name of the seminar has been you know the bull are the elk not talking well then cry like a baby and it and it talks about using calf vocalizations uh to get silent elk to either a respond or, or either vocally respond and or to move your way and and the the big part about that is is that I understand where the discussion went I I there's there's just that's a problem there's there's caveats to this and this is where just me saying do this provides no context and no basis for you to evaluate the effectiveness of that tool, that strategy, on it's situational. The You're saying it's situational. Totally. Correct, correct. And so that's again, my philosophy is teaching you the why. Why are elk vocalizing the way they are? What are they saying? What do they expect is a response? Now, when people talk about calf sounds, you'll hear people say, "Well, calf sounds, those those high pitched sounds." Okay, and. If we're talking about you and I dealing with an infant, a baby, and the baby's just babbling, okay, well, that's baby talk. Okay, I understand that. But if a toddler or a kindergartner, we don't assume that a kindergartner is going to be babbling with baby talk. No, they actually have words and they know how to communicate. Is their voice a little higher pitched than than mine or yours? Of course they are. So they're high pitched, high pitched. It indicates that, yes, it may be an age, uh, earlier age class animal, but what vocalization are you using? Most of the time, people are talking about a lost mew. Most calves, the vast majority of their vocabulary is lost mews because they're just trying to stay in contact with somebody else. 
After that, it's all up. Yes, can you get a response with that? Yes. If you use that cap vocalization correctly, can you get elk to move your way? Yes, you can. But just because you're using cap vocalizations isn't the end-all, be-all. Because quite honestly, my when I talk about a targeted calling strategy, yes, I'm using lost muse, and oftentimes I'm using lost calf muse to get somebody to cut loose and vocalize. But what do I do? I immediately get myself set up. I get in close, and then most of the time, I am going to transition over to adult assembly muse. I'm going to be sounding like a mature cow. I'm going to dictate what the cat, what what the calf that they hear is doing, and I'm also going to start communicating to the cow, the, the either the cows or the bull that I'm talking to, and I'm going to try to start dictating their activity, what they're doing. I want you to do this. I want you to come to me. So I understand where, and again, this is the the, the benefit of these type of discussions is everybody gets to listen to it and everybody gets to learn from it. Or no. I take that back. Everybody gets to, to listen to it. And then some people hear something that they like, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's a great. And then they grab it and go, and they, they, they make it their own. But if you don't understand the why behind it, you can set yourself up. Let's just say rather than failure, you can just set yourself up just for just sheer disappointment because you can go out there and just start using calf vocalizations and not get – the results that you're hoping for and then you think well i'm just use i'm 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 not doing the cat vocalizations right no you 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 did them exactly right but they weren't what was needed in that situation the situation, so. the situation wasn't right for it yeah uh, no i trust me i i do i use cat vocalizations because they are non-threatening to cows bulls do respond to them bulls will come into them i've got an entire video on the website that shows me calling in a bull elk with calf vocalizations. But the other thing, too, that a lot of guys are not talking about is they're not talking about using calf vocalizations, how calves actually vocalize. All they're talking about is using a high-pitched cow sound. Jeez, O.P., Steve Chappell. How many times have we watched Steve Chappell, you know, call in just giant freaking elk? He He's using cow sounds. He is, the, he is a, uh, he, he's a maestro when it comes to executing a cow cow call. Does he care about whether he's using calf vocalizations or mature cow vocalizations? No, he just executes the most sexiest cow vocalization you've ever heard and just, no, it, uh, I don't know. I could, I could battle on because I, I listened to that same, I, I did. I listened to that podcast. I heard the, the discussion and I was like, well, they got a part of it. But the rest of it is going to leave people with questions, and that's just unfortunately, unless they come over and watch my stuff. I <laughs> uh, got a, one here. Similar to a second rut with whitetails, do bulls move around looking for cows still in heat later in the month? Yes. Absolutely, yes. And that's, I mean, it happens, and that's why you can get bulls bugling and chasing cows all the way into the 15th of October and even later in some places oh, where you get, you know, second and third cycles. And and um, so, yeah, they just move around like a horny billy goat looking for whatever they can get because they only have about 30 days to get her done. Yeah, and so two two things. One, I, Weedy in the Wild just 
added another comment that I want to jump on that with with that cat vocalization. But yes, what you're talking about is exactly right. So two things: one, uh, sometimes they sometimes the cow doesn't uh, either cycle on time if the forage quality is, is poor and she comes in late. And so it can drag out that rut. And so you can have multiple uh, bugling strut spikes in there and activity. Um, and then quite honestly, if the, if the uh, forage quality has been awesome for a while, you can have female elk calves being born early or at a high body weight. And they can actually cycle if they have enough body condition, they can actually cycle that first year, but oftentimes they'll cycle, you know, in October. And so, yes, that's why some of those October, early October hunts can just be phenomenal. Um, either the animals are getting, are, are bugling because there is estrus smells, pheromones in the, in the woods, or just like turkeys, they're got gobbling, they're bugling because all of a sudden all that activity left and now they're horny and they're like, where, please, dear Lord, let there be someone else. And so they're out there across the landscape just trying to find somebody that's still cycling in an estrus. But one, the, one thing I want to point out here real fast, Chris, is just to make sure um, there's no misunderstanding. Both you and I think Joel Turner is phenomenal caller. Yes. We, he's yeah. a great person. We love Joel Turner. Yeah. Um, so nothing either one of us, I don't think, has said it. You know, nothing personally. I don't even know what other podcast, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the, the key is we can have discussions like this and have a little bit, you know, saying we need more context to just tell people to race yeah. out and start making calf sounds and then nothing to do with what we think of Joel Turner. We both, as I know, cause we, we both know Joel and he's a great person and a, he's a world champion. So, I mean, yeah. he's, yeah. we're not in any way. Um, demeaning or, or taking and saying discrediting what he's saying at all and not not one bit uh, got of large drainage early season bivy in what's your play okay. a large drainage early season he's bivying in which is Chris what you used to do in your high country camp what is your play okay how, I and he says how are you calling are you glassing more or calling more alright let me touch on one thing that I was trying to say before. So what came out of some of the discussion and what some people have uh, misunderstood before and that comment was, you know, well, you know, calf vocalizations don't call, they don't carry very far and they're, they're kind of quiet. No, mm. wrong. I've they're got, the they, yes, they add now when, when they're in close proximity with their mothers and with the herd, absolutely they are. And, and when they're close to their buddies, absolutely they are. But I've got, I don't know how many videos, man, do you and I both have? I've got some that I'm in the Alpine, and those elk are like 400 yards away, and that's all you can hear is the calves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, no. And that's honestly how I use them. I don't oftentimes use quiet calf calls. I'm using calf calls to be the loudmouth calf on the landscape panicked trying to find someone so no i'm cranking them there's a reason why i had jason phelps build me a custom mouth diaphragm that allowed me to just absolutely hammer the cat vocalizations but anyway i move on so speaking of that have you seen his new um external um it's pretty good it's it's pretty good i don't have one in front of me but um uh i you know 
I think yes. if you were able to mix that in with the diaphragm as well, and you could get you could get several calves, you know, kind of stirred up and, and definitely get um, you know some elk to come to y'all that. So yes, I did. I, I got one. It sounds awesome. It absolutely sounds awesome. I do like the fact that he used, he doesn't have the, the wide read that Steve does or that Primos does, you know, and I kind of like a wider read, but this is not a skinny read, which I appreciate. Uh, but you can see that hole on the uh, tiny. And so it does. Restrict. Yeah. So you can't, I, I can't blow. The, you have to use light, light pressure. You have to use light lip pressure. And it's it. This one is by design a close range finisher call. It is not designed to get out there and just launch. So if people are thinking that, that's that's not what this is for. But no, it's a it's a great little little call. So um, let's get back. Let's let's get to yeah. the, the question he asked. Uh, back to um, JD Glasser, uh, Kong Valley. He's asking suggestions on both three and four person setup. Uh, one caller we kind of already go back and listen but yep. anything that i said in that three to four person um scenario with one caller first of all walking in the woods with five guys i wouldn't recommend it um maybe if if you know you're the only one that can call put the other two guys maybe on stand on a wallow uh and it's you know two guys out in front with bows is, is good but walking with five of you you know five uh, different, you know, human scent. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, have the other two guys up glassing and scouting. Take the other two guys, try and get shots. Chris, anything you can add that? Exactly. If you've got that many guys in your hunting party, split up, man. What You know, a couple of you go over on this side of the drainage. A couple of you go on that side of the drainage. It's just spread yourselves out just to figure out where the elk are. And hey, great. Maybe both groups get into elk and you're like, hell yeah, here we go. And you get some elk on the ground. Awesome. But at the very least, especially early in your hunt, when you're still trying to find those animals, spread out, man. Don't just put, you know, yeah, I agree. Spread that out. Now, if you're going to all go together, I know it's popular. You can see it on YouTube. How many series you see where all the guys are going together on YouTube. Now, granted, and some of them, they're still spreading out. They're still splitting up, and you know, a couple of them are going over here, and a couple of them are going over there. If you're going to do that, then yeah, try to maximize your ability um, to the best you can. But no, it, it can be difficult. Some yeah, people are like, all the time. Oh, elk make a lot of sound. Well, they can, but I've also just watched them go, just vanish into nothingness you're better off with one caller and one shooter that's best if you have two shooters and one caller then fine but any more than that um is challenging and you know as much as we've tried to film hunts and stuff when you add the the caller the cameraman and the hunter three guys that's a lot so um just a rule of thumb if you can keep it to two a caller and a hunter that's best three but don't go over three uh we've got here uh, Jay, I noticed the kind of dimpling on my diaphragm after a few days of calling. Is there something to look for on diaphragms to tell you if they're damaged and no longer good? I'm not going to look at it at all. I'm going to go off sound. So, you know, if, if it's sounding good, 
Um, I'm going to keep rolling it, but I'm always have six or seven or eight or 10 twos, threes, and fours in backup. I never just have one call. I always am breaking in new calls. And as, as soon as my number one, I just throw it away, go to the number two, three, always have eight or 10 calls uh, working at any given time. I mean, if you look in what I carry around, I mean, I can blow my one call as good as my 10 call, but I might have gone through 30 or 40 calls to find those, you know, top 10. Super important because you don't want to blow out a read and then, you know, be down and not have confidence. Always have your number two, three, four, fives, like have it, have them ready to roll because, you know, I hear people saying they use a diaphragm for like a full season. I mean, I use a diaphragm maybe for a week. You know, I'll hunt 30 days in a row, and I get a week and done. I'm out. That one goes. I go to the next one. Um, and I don't know if it's my style or the way I'm blown or what, but, um, you know, if, if you get cracking, then sometimes when those diaphragms and that latex starts kind of cracking and you can kind of see little cracks, to me, sometimes those are when the, it sounds absolute best. But you're also at a fine line there when – you go from cracks to holes, and then you're done. So, you know, breaking a call in and getting it, you know, really good, there's a fine line where it could switch on you. So make sure you have those backups. Yeah, Jay, you did a phenomenal podcast a couple of years ago with, Jay, uh, with um, Jason Phelps about mouth diaphragms and, and about how they change over time. And how you can modify them, you know, you're putting them in soda and that type of stuff. I th- it's not a bad idea for you, right? Maybe you were all already going to, but you might want to go back and find that episode and re-release it again because that was phenomenal. I, I keep and, and I don't throw away my diaphragms after each season simply because of that. Because I've found, well, last year I found that sometimes my one and two year old mouth diaphragms all of a sudden just magically turn on. I'm like, where were you when and, I needed? And that's the thing I was going to say, too. It's one thing to blow a diaphragm out. I'll throw that one away. Um, back in the day, like, Chris, you were with Primos. Um, Mr. Will used to send me boxes of, like, literally a box of 100 of, of each of the different calls and was asking for feedback and, you know, just running through them. And even the ones that I didn't like, I would put in a separate bag and I would label them, you know, not ready yet. Um, and I would soak those in you know, Coke and Sprite and Dr. Pepper, different time frames, trying to loosen that latex up. And then all of a sudden, maybe the next year I pull that bag of 30 or 40 out and five or six of them, I mean, the latex would be perfect. Yep. So I, I don't want people thinking I'm throwing them away. I'm throwing them away when they crack and they break, you know, the, the latex breaks up, then they go in the trash. But I mean, I got stacks um, in my box of literally hundreds of diaphragms and I, I typically start going through them and I might find one that's five years old and for whatever reason it's, the latex has broken down enough that I can make the sounds that I'm looking for specifically when I'm looking for the cow sounds and the tone that I'm looking for sometimes those older diaphragms um, just are the ticket yeah they're awesome uh, scent control is so important, yet some of us require sunscreen, which I, I do, 
uh, bug repellents for mosquitoes. Do you have any recommendations on unscented products to help with sun and bug protection? I I want to add one or answer one thing of this real fast is sun protection is something that I think I'm fair skin, so I have to wear unscented sunscreen, um, and I try and do it as much as I possibly can. My wife would say I don't do it near enough. The other thing about bug spray, here's an interesting thing. I'm curious if anybody else has heard the same thing, but years and years ago, this is like 20 years ago, I had guys in eastern Arizona that they, not even when there was, when there were no bugs, they would get um, cutter mosquito bug spray. They'd be spraying down with it, spraying their whole body. And they swore. Now, I would walk up to them and it's just like, oh, it smells like mosquito spray. They were wearing specifically cutter bug spray. They swore that by, by spraying that down, that they would have elk close to them in lots of situations and the elk wouldn't smell them. Well, I thought that's a bunch of bull. I start, I started doing it, had the same response. The only thing that I could think is that the elk smelled that, but didn't associate that smell. What we smell is unnatural mosquito spray. It smells like chemical. For whatever reason, and I have no idea why cutter makes a difference, but, I mean, those guys t- to this day still swear by it, and they spray down every time with cutter bug spray, and they say that the elk don't associate that smell with human. What do you, What are your thoughts on that, just on the face value? You know, well, and it'd be very interesting to see where this was happening, too, because I could absolutely see a scenario. So I, real quick, bighorn sheep, I, I drew two different sheep tags in Colorado in, in the unit, a, a ram tag and a U tag. And this particular unit sees a lot of recreational hikers. And my when I first went in to get my ram, I acted like a hunter and it was difficult. And I, I mean, I finally pulled it off. I got I got a nice ram the next year. I heard someone say, no, 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 don't, don't act like a hunter. Go in there and just walk around, wear city clothes with your bow and just act like a a hiker. And that's what I did. Literally, you just walk within like 30 yards of the stinking sheep. So I got my U. So there's a point to what you're saying, or maybe if there's a high level of human activity in the area and they're hikers that have zero impact on elk. I mean, hikers don't bother elk. You know what I mean? Hikers are predictable. Hikers are you know, innocent bystanders that, that are no threat. And so maybe in some of these areas, they smell that and they're like, oh, it's just another hiker. Never mind, moving on. And they ignore it. However, there is in the whitetail industry, there's what there's a company that, that sells what they call nose jammer. And it's supposedly this, this, you know, scent that blocks their, no, it's just vanilla scent. It smells like vanilla. And it's supposed to do the exact same thing. It, it, it's supposed to cover or, overwhelm the uh, senses of a whitetail to where he doesn't associate that smell with a hunter. I had one of my hunters, I didn't, he didn't tell me he was doing it, but one of my hunters was wearing it. I'm walking, I'm like, I'm like, did he use his wife's shampoo? What did, what did, you smell lovely. What is that? <laughs> I was, it was like, what? And he's sitting there going, 
I, I'm not wearing it. I'm like, are you wearing cologne? He's like, no, I'm not wearing anything. I, I, I'm, I'm all set free. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, I can smell you from here. I'm like, it took us forever to figure out what it was. He's like, well, well, I sprayed the stuff down with nose jammer. I'm like, give me that thing. <laughs> I'm like, that's what it is. It's thinking vanilla. So I don't know, man. I mean, the, the, how, what, you know darn well if the elk are going to smell you, they're going to blow out. So I guess if, if you have no choice, give it a try. I don't know. I would tell you, I used it for a few years and actually thought it it works pretty good. I actually have elk that I'm like, that elk should be running away and it's He's not. not. So, I, you know, I'm just hey. telling you, they swore by it. I've used it a little bit. But back to the scent stuff, like, guys, it really doesn't matter when they're downwind they're going to smell you so there's you know maybe a period where they won't smell you as much but i mean here's here's the thing if, you, if you're going to hunt out of a camper or out of a base camp where you can have because i will I'll, I'll carry several uh quart jars or jugs of uh either i love primo silver xp or um dead downwind both of those seem to do extremely well i really do love the well it's not silver xp anymore it's like what do they call it the control freak or whatever it is it works really really well and most of the time i use it just to knock my own stink down so i don't have to smell myself if i can't keep up with uh with laundry or showers but if you have the ability to do that that's fine but if you're going to go hunt in the backcountry and you're going to hike all the way in you're not going to control your scent. It's it's not going to happen. So just play the wind the best you can. Uh, we've got uh, CC Pizza Bro back to he wants hunting a large drainage early season. Vivian, what's your play? How are you calling? Are you glassing more or less? What what are you doing, Chris? Yeah, it depends on the terrain. If if you've got a if you're way the heck back in there and you've got a lot of alpine and open meadows and, and opening areas where you can get you know, climb to an elevated spot and, and use the glass, you know, your binoculars or spotty scope to figure out where the animals are, figure out where they're coming and going, you know, how where are they feeding? Are they feeding there each night, each morning? Where are they going into the timber at to bed? When are they going in there? If you can use your eyes to pattern a group of animals and see a consistent, you know, kind of cycle in an area of operation, spend a couple days you doing that. I mean, Jay, you love sitting behind glass. I hate it. I I, it, I despise it, but I still will do it if, I, if, if I'm in those alpine areas because it's an advantage. If you can figure out what their daily cycle is and no one's in there bothering them, spend a couple days, watch them, figure out what they're doing. Because then you'll know I need to be right there where that little finger of trees comes out, and then you got, the, and then there's that deadfall right there. I mean, it seems like every time they come out, they're going thirty yards right by that deadfall. Well, that'd be good information to have, wouldn't it? Or you know for darn well that they don't come out of the timber or out of the uh, in the morning. They don't leave the alpine until nine o'clock. Why is that? Because they're waiting until the thermal shift. And then they're putting the wind in their face. Then they're dropping into the timber. Well, it's good to know that because you try to insert yourself in there too early, and this, and the, all of a sudden your scent switches and goes right up to their face. Well, you're busted. So yeah, no, use glass to your advantage. But if it's all just thick timber, I'm getting up cracko in the morning. Like I, I don't treat a backcountry hunt any different than I do a camper hunt in arizona i jay you and i've talked about it before i'm gonna be out there 3 30 4 o'clock in the morning 
I'm going to get myself in a spot where I should be able to hear a, a long distance. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to listen, try to figure out where everybody is. I might throw out a call or two just to see if I get a listener's response. And then in the dark, I'm going to try to cut the distance and move in. I'm I'm not going to change my tactics in one at all. I, my tactics are based on behavior and how to exploit that behavior. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Question here, uh, six with sticks. Uh, with the popularity of OTC units, if a guy wants to move to a limited quota area, when's the best time to look at it if you're hunting OTC? I want to change areas, but figuring out which limited quota area to go to. Um, I think you almost have to sacrifice a season and do the research ahead of time, maybe pick Bingo. a couple of different units and maybe just hunt your OTC for two or three days. But I think if you're going to make the move, at some point you have to go ahead and jump and go, maybe go pre-scout, go take some hikes, go camp overnight, go listen for some bulls, go try and monitor you know, people at trailheads and, and what's going on. I think you know, unless you have a buddy that can do it for you while you're hunting, the only way for you to truly really know is if you go and look at it yourself. So I think you're going to have to sacrifice and guys, um, feel free. Keep asking questions here, Chris. Uh, I think you're okay to go. Let me know if you've got a time timeline here. But uh, yeah, no. um, I, I know we've got some more questions uh, that I got on uh, Instagram. And if you had any questions, uh, dive in there, Chris. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got a list of them here too that I can touch on. But no, I, I you know what, you made a, a good point because what I was going to say is. The time to do that is in the off season. I mean, you got plenty. There's so many resources, online resources out there now that you can get in and, and pick apart information. But you bring up a very good point. Um, it's not a bad idea to say, okay, fine, I'm going to take this weekend and, you know, I'm going to look at unit XYZ. Uh, you know, it, it, or maybe you've got three units that you're, you're toying around with, depending on how many preference points you have. You might just want to go out and say, okay, what does it look like? How, how, you know, where are people parking? Where are people accessing? Um, maybe take a day hike and just go be a hiker. Don't, I mean, obviously you can't bring a bow or anything like that. Just, just become a hiker and just go up on, on, on to some glassing points and just listen and just kind of get a feel for what you think. I, I think that you can do a lot of work in the off season to figure out exactly which ones you want to narrow down and which ones you want to try. But I think if he's at that point where he kind of has an idea of what unit he's looking at, what you just said is not a bad idea. Go in there now, this season. And just kind of get it, just kind of get a feel for for what it looks like, and, and talk to some of the guys. I I know who this individual is. He's a very personable individual. So there's no reason in the world, you know, go in on a Sunday when a lot of people were probably going to be coming out to head home, and just talk to him. Hey, how'd it go? I I don't have a tag in here. I'm thinking about maybe someday, maybe hunting here. I'm no threat to you and your hunt right now. I'm just curious what you saw. What did you experience? What did you see? What did you hear? What you know? What's it like? It's not a bad idea. Got a great question here from Zach Shannon, 13. I keep having bulls come in frontal. I identify the doorway and try to set up in a good spot, but they always come in frontal and I don't, oh, and they don't turn broadside. Any suggestions? Before you answer that, though, tell people what the doorway is. All right, that's, it's just basically what I've, you'll hear people talk all the time about the, you know, the elk hang up at 80 yards or, you know, 60 yards or 80 yards or 100 yards. Where they, they, always, they would always come to my calling, but they would hang up. It's not that they're hanging up. What I kind of coined as the doorway or the doorway principle is if you think about how you walk through your house, you know, you have open rooms, you have hallways, and then 
from that hallway or from one room to another, you have a doorway. And if someone calls to you from the other side, from, from a different room, and you go to meet them, it's not uncommon for us to even pause in the doorway of that room instantly, I mean, in milliseconds, look, try to make eye contact, assess, and then move forward. Elk are no different. They're going to move across. They know you're, you're there. You are in their kitchen, their feeding area. You are in their bedroom, their bedding area. You're walking their hallways, those trails that are going back and forth. Okay. So you're in their house. They know their house. They've been there before. Trust me. And so as they're moving across the landscape, there are going to be places where they should be able to, I get to this bench or I get to this patch of timber where it kind of opens up a little bit or these transition areas where they should be able to step in and I should be able to see where it, where that animal I hear talking. Those are the doorways. Where is that transition between cover, terrain? Where's the first place an elk from over there that's coming my way should be able to lay eyes on where I'm at because that's what they want to do. That's, that's the doorway. Uh, yeah, that's what that's where they're going to stop. That it doesn't matter where you are. That's where they're going to stop. Period. Whether you're a hundred yards from it or ten yards from it, they're going to stop there. But guess what? It's up to you to put yourself in range of that spot. It's your. It's, it, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't hang up. You chose the bad setup. You you chose the wrong spot on the map to to set up. So okay, to, they're if, coming in. They're coming in front on. What can you do different? Yeah, and that. So Zach, I I had yours written down here too. So I'm glad you chimed in and asked it again bottom line i i've said this before my calling philosophy i'm what do i say call them to your toes they're they're right here right there i can hear them swallowing okay so yeah you're gonna have a lot of frontals and and hard quartering two shots so in my opinion you've got two options number one get your bow set up your arrow and broadhead set up designed to take advantage of that a frontal shot properly executed in, you know, I don't like it any, I don't like taking a frontal shot beyond 20 yards just because the, the animal can react. But you've watched my videos where I've killed elk and they're frontal or hard quartering. And I have my broadhead, iron wheel broadheads with a medium to heavy arrow. That arrow's going stem to stern, going right through them. And it can be an absolute deadly, deadly shot opportunity. If you don't want to do that, the other option is to go ahead and let that animal spook or let that animal come in. And if he's going to stop broadside or whatever, go ahead and let him see you at the last little second. Just go ahead and draw. Yes, he's going to spook. He's going to turn. And he's going to wheel. A lot of times, though, a lot of times those bulls will go, they'll spin. They'll trot off a couple steps and stop and they'll look back. That's where you can get a quartering away shot. Okay. There's pluses and minuses with both of those. Um, Will he spin and, and will he take off and just leave the county? Well, he might. Will he blow up and spin and turn and turn broadside? He might. Or does he just go out there and turn and he's like a hard, hard quartering away where you've got to get that arrow just right. Otherwise, you're you know hitting guts and everything else. So it, it, is, it is tricky. Now, if you can, and I don't know what you're doing when that moment of uh, when that moment occurs, when they come in, because. If you just stand dead stone still and you don't make a state, make a con, don't make a sound. A lot of times those bulls are going to come in and they're going to look and they're going to stand there. They're going to stand there. They're going to stand there. They're going to look. They're going to stand there. 
And if you go back to the elk module and what I talk about in some of this stuff, when they break their focus and break their concentration, there's there's an opportunity to call or just stand there and let them continue to seek. Because sometimes they'll stand, stand, and they're like, well, I know darn well I just heard some. Let me take a couple more steps. And you've, if you are a subscriber, you've watched those videos where the bull comes in, he stops right in the doorway. I don't move. I don't say a word. And the bull just keeps right on going, and he walks right by me broadside at 10 steps. At that point, as he slips by me, oftentimes, and if you are if you have your bow set to where you can just slowly and smoothly draw your bow, a lot of times as he's moving and he's moving his antlers through the trees or whatever, put the bow right at him, and you just draw your bow just nice and, and straight, they don't even perceive that move, movement. And if they do, they just stop and they look, and it's done. 10 yards, done. Yeah, and uh, another thing, too, that I've done is if they're approaching but they're not to the doorway yet and I'm not going to make them stop, my last call will be further, I would say, away from them from the doorway. So the last time they heard me, I'm further away so that hopefully they'll come to the doorway, make a quick stop, and continue because they think it's 40 or 50 yards on past and then let them continue on. And a lot of times one of the biggest problems is when they're standing there and they're looking and they're looking is guys can't hold still enough. If you can literally just sit there and do not move, they want it so bad most of the time they're going to look, 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 left, right, left, right, look, maybe bugle you know, looking for you, don't make a peep. They're going to then continue on. You're at full draw and you let it go. And, um, and, and this guy, uh, EH, gets uh, loop from the last call location as the bull is closing. Very similar to what you're talking about. You know, the, the issue is, is depending on the terrain and depending on the vegetation, if it's thick enough for you to be visually blocked, that can be good. But don't discount the fact that if you make a move and you snap a twig, you are now the next location because right, that elk heard. He's listening for that. He hears something, and then the last place he hears that, now you've changed that oh, doorway. She must. She must be over there. Then okay, exactly. So yes, moving can work. I just would rather trust my setup and trust myself and just no, let him come and stand right there in front of me. Well, heck, I've got that video uh, on the the. Uh, strategies and action section uh, called 108 that bull that had the ear tag down in arizona comes in he's like seven steps in front of me standing i'm in the middle of nowhere with just a camera in front of me he walks up screams in my face looks uh, and just turns and just trot trot and then he's turned and now he's broadside and there he goes there's so many examples on the elk module and that strategies and action section of this issue right here but if you watch things unfold you will see the elk will oftentimes present themselves most of the time we are so happy and anxious that we finally got a bull to come in that we feel as though we have to kill him at the right then get like the the millisecond he stops "Ah, i gotta kill him No, no 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 hold on a minute he just walked 150 200 300 yards away through all that timber he's coming to find you he thinks nothing's wrong. Just let the situation play out. Calm. Let it play out and see what happens. Uh, Zach says, every time I stayed very still and quiet, but they stayed laser focused, 
but then whirl and get out of Dodge. I guess I just need more call-ins and practice. Thank you guys for taking the time. I might say that maybe there's a chance you've called too much and you've given him too precise of a location so he knows exactly where you should be. I kind of like the elk to not know exactly where I'm at. I like an elk that's coming and wanting to know where I'm at. A lot of times they're grunting and kind of making small little sounds and they're trying to get me to respond, but I won't let them keep coming. If they're coming to the doorway and whirling, you've either, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, or your opinion, but you've either picked the wrong place to set up where they see you You've either picked a place where the wind is not is blowing into the doorway instead of the doorway, you know, blowing the right way, um, or you've called too much and they have a precise, exact location where they think you are. That's a problem. Yep, all of the above, all of the above. And so, to his point, yes, there's no two ways about it. Repeated experience on call-ins is going to help. And so don't get frustrated. The fact is you're getting elk to come in on you. I mean, you're, you're having multiple call-ins and the elk are, are coming in. Now what I want you to do is take a look at where your setup is. Because, yes, I have gotten away with some phenomenally open setups before. Um, however, I have talked about and I show that when I'm choosing, there's, there's multiple places on the landscape where if I called from this place, the doorway's here. But if I went over here and I called from this place, well, the doorway's there. So I can actually choose. The elk's over here, and he's coming this way. I want him to come this way. I've got a 50-50 choice. Can I set up against that really gnarly, broken up, mass, just weird, you know, blow down and contrasty thing that completely helps break up my outline? Or do I go over and set up against that young pine that's this big, dark, green thing, and here I am with my tan camouflage, like, bam, right in front. Okay, it, it's... Because camouflage, and this is a different one, I won't dive into it, but your reflective signature of your clothing also goes a long way. So if you have light-colored clothing, it doesn't matter if it's good camouflage or not. If I'm wearing ASAT and I'm standing against a dark-colored tree, it doesn't matter that my my outline is broken up. I stand out like I'm like a neon sign in front of that that dark-colored tree. However, if I'd just gone over here, and I stood in front of that ponderosa pine in the trunk of that tree or the trunk of that tree or this big, nasty, dead blowdown, suddenly now the colors are similar and my outline's broken up. You can have two complete, wildly different perceptions by that animal as he comes into that setup. Um, Chris, we've got a question here. Will a decoy help with drawing a bull past the doorway? Uh, it can. Uh, it depends on the decoy that you're using. However, I will say, now, I'm, I'm going to give a caveat to this, and this is an honest one. Your calling strategies and how you call can play a part in whether or not a decoy is going to help you. So if on the way I particularly call, my philosophy and in, in my strategies, I have had numerous uh subscribers give me feedback when they've used decoys and they have all come back with the exact same thing that I think ditch the decoy work the setup if you can get a good setup 
if you have your setup right and you are calling the way I, I usually call, 99.9% of the time you do not need a decoy. And quite honestly, you're better off not having a decoy because then they do see it. And depending on the decoy that you're having, and especially some of these over-the-counter units, if they're pressured, a lot of times they'll come in, they'll see it, and then they're like, oh, there she is. Wait a minute, why is she moving? And it's just this static, this this completely fixed item on the landscape that isn't isn't behaving naturally. Now, and so if you're doing a solo setup, it can be difficult with a decoy. Now, heads-up decoy I like because... It is just the head and the, the top part of the neck of a, a cow elk. So you can make that move. You can It can be movable and it can be dynamic. That helps. Um, heck, a buddy of mine has the ultimate predator decoys where it's the front on of a cow elk and, and you can shoot through it. Uh, that's a, It's a great-looking decoy. It works very, very well, especially if you're mobile and you're moving. I have. I have tested it out before he bought the company. I tested it out extensively, and what I found was a lot of the mature bulls, if they saw that out there at 60, 50, 60, 70 yards, they, they just pause and they stop because it's the cow. The cow was just calling. He just made up 80% of the distance. Okay, now what do you want to do? And so he's waiting for her to make a move. He's waiting to see what she wants to do. And so he just stands there, and the longer she doesn't do anything, the longer he's like, hmm, this ain't right. I'm out. And they just go so if you if you are a mobile type hunter and you want to maybe you don't want to call as much maybe you just want to you've got bulls that are bugling and you just want to slip in and try to sniper one that ultimate predator decoy is a great one because you can put that on your bow and you can stalk and move and that mobile aspect of that particular decoy i think makes it exceptionally deadly but if you're going to be a solo hunter and you just want a static one maybe look at that montana decoys they make that elk rump it's just it's just the butt decoy, the elk butt. If you can set it off maybe 20, 30, 40 yards behind you and upwind of you. So it but don't buy and make sure that it's you, you still don't want that elk to be able to see that decoy from a hundred yards away. You still want that elk to be able to see the decoy once it hits the doorway. Because you want that decoy hopefully to help pull it past you. Well, put it upwind so if the elk does go that way then it can go upwind of you but if the elk just stands there and and stares at it at least maybe his eyes are on the decoy and you can draw or make a better shot but i'm telling you there's so many people that have gotten a hold of me and they're like dude what you said and how you said and called and your setup no ditch the decoy because the decoy should just not have the decoy that he would have just walked right on through. So it's just like any other tool. It can help you in the right situations. It can be a detriment in the others. I like being highly mobile and just being flexible. So most of the time, I'm just working the setup. I'll take a few more questions here, guys. Um, When calling Roosevelt bulls, do you think calling Sinkuses differ at all? I have no experience. I've never even seen a Roosevelt elk, so I can't really answer that. But I, I would think the scenarios are very similar other than the country is the timber's a lot more dense, so you're probably going to hear a bull bugle and you're going to think that they're further away than they are, right? Because the, the sound's going to be muffled by the trees. Um, they're actually going to be closer. 
Um, but Chris, any experience with Roosevelt elk? My old, un, yes, but unfortunately, mine were late season. So it was it was a, it was a. I don't know if Washington still has it, but when I was in the military there, uh, the only time I could hunt was I think it was a December season on the Olympic Peninsula. So it, it was just a complete spot and stock hunt. But no elk or elk. I mean, the, the behaviors and the vocalization are extremely similar across every species. The issue is how they interact with their habitat and the 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 hunter slash predator pressure that they experience on a daily basis. So how they interact with their habitat and then where they find those sanctuary areas. But the vocalization is the same. The setups are the same. My strategies are exactly the same. Uh, we've got how to call a bedded solo bull through open sagebrush country. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, now, when you say open sagebrush country, please tell me that there's a least spotty, you know, pinion juniper out there. Because if it's if it's open sagebrush country, man, I mean, all the elk has to do is just stand up and look and be like, I'm not seeing anybody. Now, I guess that at that point, maybe this is where if you have a couple guys, you know, say say you've got one shooter and you've got a couple buddies with you, then maybe take a couple buddies that have the, you know, the full-on, full-body style, you know, Montana decoys. And, you know, you go 200 yards out in the back, and they, they just they just stand there looking like a couple elk sitting on the landscape, and then, you know, you're you're closer and have them call, and maybe he stands up and, and comes across. But, no, open, open sagebrush like that, man, dude, that's going to be tricky, man. It, I think you're going to have to use terrain, you're gonna it, it maybe quite honestly sometimes it's just gonna be one if it's if it's deep tall sagebrush that can hide you and maybe spot and stock is the way to go. If you're dark Colburn, you don't even have to duck. You just sneak up there on them and shoot them in their bed in the sagebrush. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, just got a text from the Latvian Eagle Giannis Vitalis oh, saying he he can't hear me. Curious if you guys this whole hour and a half have not been able to hear me. Um, and Giannis, we need your production quality here. Chris and I are kind of winging this. This is our first Instagram live. I can um, hear you just fine. But uh, good to have you, Giannis. I'm glad you're listening. Um, and I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you one of these days. Um, a little unknown fact about Giannis. Um, he actually used to guide with uh, Dara and I uh, down in Arizona. And um, we had a lot of, a lot of fun with him. So... Uh, good to see that he's tuning in. Uh, what class of bull can I expect to shoot in 6A in Arizona? I assume he's talking about the archery hunt. One of the things about 6A is I want to say there's like 700 bull tags and 900 cow tags, give or take. I think there's like 1,500 people in the unit. It does have probably more elk uh, than any unit in the state, uh, but tons of people. So that's never been a unit that I've focused on. Uh, but as far as class of bull, I think this year the antler growth will be average. I think you can expect a lot of elk, you know, young five points and six points, you know, 260, 270 up to, you know, probably 330. And I think there will be a few 340, 350, maybe a little bit better bulls around. But um, if that unit did not get the amount of pressure that it did, it would hold really big elk. It just gets hunted so much, and it's a pretty darn good late hunt, so those elk don't get a chance to grow up. Uh, Chris here, what is what are Chris's archery plans for Colorado this year? 
<laughs> try to figure out what I want to do for this year. That's, that's my archery plan right now. Try to figure it out. Um, yeah, I've got a couple. Uh, so I've obviously I did not draw. Well, I guess not obviously. I did not draw a limited tag um, this year. Um, so, and I haven't I haven't shared this with a lot of people. Jay and I have talked about. It. So I've, I'm still trying to figure out some lung issues. I don't know if it's long COVID that I'm dealing with. Um, largely, it's been like. Or, or maybe I just developed asthma as I became an adult. I don't know. We're trying to figure it out right now, but it seems like I got about 50% lung function these days. And so hiking in some remote stuff might not be in my, my near future. I don't know. Uh, but I've got several over-the-counter units that I can go to. I could go back to my old stomping grounds. I haven't been there in a couple years now since, you know, last year I didn't hunt elk for myself at all. Um, so I, I've got that, but then I've got other two other, uh, over the counter units that I've been looking at that to go hunting with buddies that I have not gone stomping in, in these areas, uh, in a while. And I'm very curious about going and doing that. And then, um, kind of eyeballing some other options as well. But right now, dude, I'm serious. It's August 1st and I am like as prepared as like this much. So <laughs> we'll see. We will see. It says, Chris, I'm bow hunting Southern Colorado Unit 77 the last week of September. Be aggressive or sit water. I have no idea, and I hate to say that. I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know what. I don't know how many elk you're going to have in your area. I don't know what the age class of those elk are going to be. I don't know what whether you've got bulls with cows and then satellites, or you just every bull has. You know, it's like one bull and four cows, one bull, three cows, and everybody's locked down. I don't know what the hunter pressure is going to look like. Um, give it now with the water set and, and this is parallel to a, a, a part of a question, uh, from Sterling earlier about, you know, being this wet, you know, sitting wallows, or is it better to, you know, hunt feeding areas? You know, like we said in the beginning, um, with this much moisture on the landscape, if your area is wet, wallow sits may be less productive productive than it would be in a dry year and maybe you focus more on those feeding areas in the early you know in, in the mornings and the evenings and, and such um i i don't know man i i don't know what you're going to be dealing with and i think you, if you come to you know again my philosophy is you know i talk about all the time the valley of the 10 bulls i i walk into a valley and there's 10 different groups of elk with 10 different bulls I want to have the tool sets and the skill sets to be able to work every single bull in that valley. However, that bull needs to be worked. You know, I, I so if you develop your skill sets now and, and you understand your calling and what you're saying and why, you will be flexible and you will be you will be better able to be dynamic on that landscape as the conditions unfold in front of you. So it's about the best I can do. I apologize. Got a question here. I might add one thing to that. If you're if you're finding wallows, let that dictate. If you're finding smoking hot wallows and you can tell they're pounding them, change your tactics. Yeah. If you get there and they're just you're coming across different wallows and they haven't touched it, then you've got to, you've got to switch. But I mean, over at the ranch, I mean, when Hunter and I notice we get two or three days of really warm weather and we start we we hammer our cameras on the wallows to try and capture as much content as we can. Um, and I, guys, I encourage you to check out the Odd Six Ranch Instagram page. We're, we're going to have an unbelievable content season this year uh, with the cameras we have um, at Odd Six. I'll also have it on the J. Scott Instagram. 
But, you know, when they get to wallowing, it's they're on them like, I mean, they are on them. Um, Real quick, before you yeah. get off that, though, and, and this goes back to Fresh Sign, and, and I had answered that question earlier on my page. Um, people were asking about Fresh Sign. With wallows, and, and what Jay just said is, is key, but the, the question is, is, if it's is it fresh? Just because it seems milky, the water in the wallow seems milky does not necessarily mean it's, it's overly fresh. So what, what you need to do every time you walk up to a wallow, what I do, I'll take a stick and I'll stir the mud up a little bit. Does that thing just silt up and just and just completely silt up and the silt just hang there for like a long period of time? Or does it stir up mud and then just settle right back to clear water? Because if you touch it and it stir it up and it just instantly turns to chocolate milk and it just hangs there, man... An elk could have been there two days ago versus you stir it up and it just immediately settles out. Okay, well, you know that it settles out pretty quick. Well, then all of a sudden you walk over to this wallow and not only is there wet mud on the on the vegetation, it's still stirred up. Okay, that's being used. That's fresh. That's being churned over, churned over, churned over a lot. Now, hopefully you're finding elk tracks in it, not just muddy water because bears love to go wallow around in, in those wallows as well. But just use that, you know, go stir it up and just evaluate how long does it take for that water to settle out? Because that will give you a better indication in the area. How, how recent was an animal in this water? Uh, we've got a question here. What situation dictates uh, you guys to challenge a bull? I'd like to kind of address that first, Chris. Um, <laughs> Let me stand. Okay, I'm up on my soapbox. Um, okay, so for the challenge Earth, bugle doesn't exist. Okay, Sorry. so <laughs> I'm going to say for the Arizona and New Mexico guys that are listening, I got to watch what I say here. <laughs> um. I believe that there are some calling strategies that work very well on young bulls that are curious when you bugle at them and they want to come. And I agree that there are calling strategies on big, giant, mature bulls that will come and knock your head off. But my experience 20 years guiding on public land in Arizona is that when you come to Arizona with the idea that you're going to come blow their hat off and you're going to come look for the one bull in the unit that wants to play and wants to bugle and have a challenge back and forth, you are going to get your butt handed to you as far as calling elk in. Consistently. Consistently. You might find the one bull or the two bulls that wants to come and fight and do the whole thing, but... And I will argue with anybody in the world about this. When you come to Arizona, you are dealing with elk that have a higher age class than a lot of different states. You come and your bugle does not sound perfect. And you don't blow it at the right time and it doesn't sound good. You are going to do yourself more harm than good. And... If people want to have a whole podcast where we can argue about that, that's fine. But I'm telling you, 20 – so I've taken some criticism. I'm going ahead to just air it all out here right now. 
I have taken some personal messages and some criticism that I don't know what I'm talking about because I guided in 20 years in Arizona and I hunt, I've hunted reservations and I watch elk every day on a private ranch. One thing I will tell you is maybe all that's true, okay? But my at-bats and the amount of exchanges and the amount of elk that I've seen, heard, called, watched, witnessed, my at-bats is probably higher than anybody in the country. So when Chris talks about behaviors, when he talks about some of this stuff, I've seen a lot of this stuff for 20 years in Arizona and then at the ranch. I watch elk for 45 days straight, morning and night. So when I tell you, and, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody specifically, but coming to Arizona and thinking you're going to be blowing challenge bugles and that's your strategy, I promise you a better strategy across the board is going to be coming in sweet talking, cow calling, starting with that first. I'm not saying that there's not time when bugling might not work and challenging a bull doesn't work. But for the most part, come in sweet talking, you're going to do a lot better. Chris, I've dug a hole for myself. Pull me out of it. <laughs> okay, so if we go to his question, when would we do that? I will only, and I'm going to use your terminology, or this the, the challenge a bull. When I am literally down to my last day or two of the hunt, I have found a bull that is absolutely the last. That's he's the only he's the only bull that I want to kill. Period. End of discussion. That bull. That's the bull I want to kill. Okay. So I, I'm I'm on that bull. No other option is acceptable. I am down to literally my last day or last couple sits or efforts on this bull. I have already tried everything else that I teach and talk about. I've used every behavioral interaction I can up until that point, and they've all failed. And the bull ends up getting himself in a situation where all of the factors necessary, I can get in close, I can get next to his cows, but all those, all the traditional, you, he's asking this question and guaranteed He's listened to every other person out there that loves to bugle at elk about and, and knows exactly what scenario they talk about. I'm not going to try to, and I'm not going to say challengeable. I'm not going to try to be a threat to him with bugles or uh, you know with a big honking gnarly dominant bugle, unless that's literally I've got no other play. I literally have no other play, and I'm getting ready. That bull's either going to walk out of my life forever, or or I'm just packing up and going home. With that being said, how many times have I done that? I can think of a couple of times where I've, I, 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 there's been a numerous times where I've used bull vocalizations to call it a bull, but they have not been challenge, quote unquote, bull bugles. Because again, and I joke about this, but I'm dead serious, challenge bugle doesn't exist. Um, and I can think of one time, and that was in Unit 49, Colorado, when I had a limit tag. And I was literally getting ready to go home. 
and I was dealing with a bunch of small bulls, small bulls, small bulls, and all of a sudden a holy freaking what the that type of bull showed up and he had a whole bunch of cows and they were moving down the mountainside and I had a split set. I, I literally I was like, there is no time to play. There is no time to try to I, I've got to get this guy to stop and at least stop and try to, to head me off. And so I tried it. He did. He stopped and he did exactly what he normally did. He stopped. He delayed, but he stopped in a place where it wasn't going to give me a shot. He sat there, bugled, screamed, looked around, turned around, grabbed his cow, down the hill, away they go again. What Jay said there was was perfect. There are a lot of people that talk about elk calling that, and we don't even need to name names because they're all very prominent vocal social media people. That yeah, give, it's nothing personal. Correct. correct. It's just a totally, a, a totally different style and... I'm friends 20, with most of them. 20 years of experience in a state, I think I have a a way to say it doesn't work. Yeah, no, so and so he just qualified. So best Matt just qualified. Yeah, no, you're right, man. It, it for me it's gonna be a last resort because and I've talked about this before. Now again, let's just real quick, I'm friends with most of those other guys. I'm like personal I, friends with them. I love them I, and, and they're very they're good callers. But every single one of them comes out and says the exact same thing. This is the type of bull I want to play with. And so when I give my example of the Valley of the Ten Bulls, they're going into that valley and they're trying to find the one bull, maybe, that wants to play that style of game. I'm not that philosophy. So, yes, Vestmat. So, in my opinion, for me, for me to get to that aggressive level, I'm, I'm going to do exactly, it's got to be, there. there's literally, I've thrown the entire kitchen sink at him and I am down to the where I am either going to leave uh, yeah, I've got to go home or this bull is going to leave my life forever. And so I have no, there's, there's no reason why not to try it because if I try it too early and it doesn't work and I blow that bull off the mountain, great. Now what? You know what I mean? I'd rather have multiple, like Jay, perfect at bats. I would like to try to work that bull multiple times over multiple days with multiple strategies before I go all in and just crack him across the nose with a baseball bat. I. I did see something here in the question. Someone talked about raking, and I can't agree more. For me, rather than bugling, doing a lot of raking, getting in close to a bull with cows and raking, for me, I see that working way better than if you bugle at them. And I will say that, in my opinion, there's not enough people out there that are good enough buglers to consistently use the bugle. If you bugle like Steve Chapel, then yeah, you can probably use the bugle a lot more. Corey, yeah, if, or Corey. If you don't sound like them, Dirk, yeah, that, then you probably shouldn't. These are guys that are very, very good at the bugle. But what I'm saying is, my ear here's a lot of other people that are not even in the same category. So they go out and expect it would be like, if I told you to go out and use a certain fly and that's a method that I've done and it's very hard to do. And I tell you, that's the way to fish and you'll catch every fish in the river. Well, if you don't mend, if you don't throw it the right way, if you, if you it won't work at all. So yeah. I like coming in sweet more than coming in hot and trying to challenge an elk 
but I will say, great point that, uh, that someone said there is raking. In Arizona, on bulls that are 10, 11, 12 years old, cows that are 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, raking is an unbelievable tool. And I've seen it work, and I use it a lot. I sneak in there. I don't make a single sound. I get 60, 70 yards, and I rake, and that bull will come right to me a lot. So uh, finding one bull on many OTC hunts will run you ragged. Hunt 10, it says. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great stuff, guys. I like the format. Solo hunting, how do you manage to do both rake and be ready to shoot? If you're, it, it helps a lot if you have someone with you. But what I would do is I would sneak in close. I would have, you know, have your bow setting there, and I would go ahead and rake, see what kind of response. Go ahead and have your bow right there. And a lot of times they're going to come. As soon as you hit the first tree and really start going, they're going to bugle. If you ignore them and don't bugle and go right back to the raking, that's what I do. They almost always on that second time when you hit that brush, they are coming, and they're coming right. They're, they're not they are coming straight at you. Yeah, being being close is key. Number one, number two. Yeah, I agree. Have a have an arrow. You know, have some. And this is the thing. I agree with Jay. This is where having multiple people there really helps because a lot of times you can pick up a little skinny stick and, and rake like that. But and that can work. But if you pick up something that that's the size of the antlers of of the animal that you're going and just I mean just go. Sometimes that takes two hands, okay? So you just got to play with it. Maybe have your bow sitting down on the ground next to you, but just be careful you're, you're snapping branches off and a branch comes down and lands on your equipment. It yeah. could be, tr- be tricky. So, But just rake, get yourself set. Listen and evaluate what that bull does. And if he shows interest, but he just kind of he's not moving yet, hit him again. Just, just hit him again, hit him again, hit him again. Play, play it off the bull and his interest in what he's doing. And I've heard guys say, you know, mix in a bugle, and I think that's fine. But what's worked for me, especially in Arizona, is you rake, they bugle, you ignore them. You rake again, they bugle, you rake again. And they're like, what is that bull over there that won't bugle back at me? How dare him? And that's when they come to go, I want to know who this is in in my territory that's raking next to my girl's and the nerve of them to do that. In my mind, when you talk about there is no such thing as a challenge bugle, when you rake and ignore that bull when he bugles at you, that's as close to a challenge as anything I know. We that's gonna be a that's gonna be a different discussion. But I do I do like it. I have a different interpretation of the behavioral I, now. Oh god damn it. sorry. Right. No, we're gonna have we're gonna have to we'll we'll, we'll save that discussion because this is a good discussion. It, it's a it's a good topic. But we'll I start I mean, we'll I start agree. with that one on the next one. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, raking can be phenomenal. Um, and in my opinion, I agree with you, Jay. No, do not bugle. If if you cannot do, if you just if it's just one of those things you just can't not do. You know what I mean? You're like cow ground. Well, you could do that. But then, then you're a bull with the cows over there, and that bull's going. Now that bull has cows, may, or or maybe one of my cows. Okay, now if you have to bugle because you just I've been try, I've been practicing my bugle. I gotta I gotta do something. Then I would do what 
I talk about what I kind of call like a check bugle, where you hear those bulls that they'll they'll want us they'll want to bugle, and then they think better of it. They're like, ah, 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 ah. it just they, they want to bugle, but they're like, mm, I might get my butt whooped. That, in my opinion, goes along with what the connotation of that raking is doing, because sometimes bulls will rake because they're frustrated. And they're, they're nervous, and they're trying to make themselves out to be bigger than they are. And so that other bull hears that, and he's like, oh, dude, you, I, who that? No, you're, get the freaking hell out of here. So I, I'm going to push you out now. So, no, I agree with you, Jay. Put the, just, leave the, just leave the bugle in your pack. And what to use to rake? Um, a hard stick, like a log or, you know. About the size of a baseball bat. Yep, but you want it hard, not some rotten thing that just falls apart. And quite honestly, there's some people, if you're walking around and you find a, a shed antler, like a brown shed, it doesn't matter, a shed antler, like a four-point or five-point shed antler, sometimes that's awesome to use. But, you know, something about about the bigger round is a baseball bat and really, really hard. Uh, you bring up a point that we'll have to talk about another time, but a couple of small five-point type antlers and clicking them together. Oh, yeah, there's another yeah. one. Yeah. Sne- yeah. Sneaking yeah. in close to, to yeah. bull bedded with cows and you start kind of clanking some antlers together and maybe rake just a little bit. Super deadly. We've got uh, how much uh, will a mature bull's antlers grow? Um, I can tell you from following bulls at the Odd Six Ranch, it totally depends on feed. It depends on age. You know, depends on a lot of different factors, Um, as well as you know, guiding in Arizona for twenty years on public land. um, Easily, a bull can put on thirty inches uh, easily uh, in the right conditions in his correct or the right age cycle depending on where he's at um can put on 30 inches pretty pretty easy i've seen bulls that go from you know 350 to 380 i've seen bulls that go from 300 to you know maybe even 340 so i mean 30 40 inches is is pretty easy um question a uh, follow-up is that how much will a bull uh, and chris weigh in here how much will a mature bull's antlers grow during their their last month of growth um, with average moisture and feed, not much. Um, I yeah, think there's no, a, I think there's a point when they're just going like crazy, and about the last two weeks is when virtually none, and then the two weeks prior to that, they can still, you know, go pretty good. But I would say they're going to do more in that two months prior to them shedding their velvet. So I mean, typically, uh, you know, that that month of June. Uh, and, and the first part of, of July is kind of um, what I think they're going to grow the most antlers. Chris? Yeah, no, so for both of those, yeah, so the older the age class of the animal, the longer uh, that they actually grow their antlers. So the younger bulls, if you think about it, they drop their antlers really, really late. But yet they're hard-horned just like everybody else's. So they have a very short window of growth. But that's just biologically, physiologically, they just don't grow as long. Mature bulls can grow there was 150 to 200 days something roughly like that but no the answer yeah and the answer is yeah those last 30 days the lo- the vast majority of growth it, it well the vast majority of growth is done what they're doing is mineralizing all of that bone so you can tell if they're going to throw more inches by looking at the tips of the antlers if the tips of the antlers are very very rounded and almost they like a gray or a dark gray, or sometimes they're a shiny black. That's because all the blood vessels are at that tip, and it's just it's just growing like crazy. Is long if it starts to if the tips start to get really pointy and it's just tan, 
uh, velvet like the rest of the antler, that tip is done growing. All it's doing now is just, it's, he's just pumping minerals and he's turning that entire rack into bone. Most of the time in August, that's all they're doing. They're, they're just throwing mineral into that, into that set of antlers. They're not growing any structure whatsoever. Most of the bulls, uh, or let's say the earliest I got reports uh, already this year was August 8th. Uh, the bulls in Unit 9, Monty let me know he had already seen some bulls rub. Um, yep. and, and they kind of rub at different stages depending on their age class. Um, would you agree, though, that the, the older bulls are going to rub first, the younger bulls are going to rub? A lot yep. of times they're going to rub later. Um, yeah, but they're going to gonna rub yeah. any time from that 8th till about that 20, 20th. 25th sometimes i've well we've seen spikes and little real young bulls uh still you know in september when bulls are bugling they still have their velvet and and i've actually watched bulls rubbing uh velvet off at the end of july before and it, it really does it's it, you know when did they drop there's a i've got a video um that i talked well heck it was a part of a podcast i i talked about the antler cycle and and how it starts, and, and it's interesting to see the feedback loop that you can get based on good trophy management of your herd, high bull-to-cow ratio, because antler shedding is hormone-related, and they fall off once the testosterone drops below a certain amount. Well, that testosterone will drop due to photo period, but as long as there's sexual stimulation through the fall that artificially holds that testosterone high, they'll extend that date on when they drop their antlers. So if, if all the cows come in and breed and there's a, a very tight breeding pulse and there's no more breeding done, those mature bulls break off that group. Well, they're done breeding. That testosterone input you know, drops faster than it does those younger age class. Usually you'll see them, the older age class, drop first, which means they get to start earlier than the right. other guys do. And it's a, it's a fixed window. It's a, it's a set number of days that typically dictate how many, you know, how, how many days of growth that particular animal is going to grow. Now, what he manifests is going to be completely based on what his body condition was coming out of the winter, how much resources does he have, and then his summer feed that he's got available to him. But he's got a fixed amount of time that he's got to grow. doesn't matter what happens in there. He, if it's going to be 150 days, he's going to grow for 150 days. But that last 30 days you know, to three weeks is all going to be mineralization of what he threw up there. So, yeah. Chris, we've got a question here um, in regards to the moon. Uh, we've got a question here, full moon, and I was just pulling that up. I believe it's on the 20th. It might be on the 17th. Who cares? Doesn't matter. All right, let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about that. Why doesn't it Go matter? Hunt. Go out and hunt. It, because there's a lot of people, you've got two different schools of thought. You know, you, you got two different things that people talk about with the moon. Does it affect the rut? They'll say, does it affect the rut? But what people are talking about in there is you've got two different things. Is it, is it and I, we've talked about this, I, I don't know how many times. Um, does it affect hormone cycling? No. There's, I mean, there's, there's enough research out there now that has shown that, no, it doesn't affect hormone cycling in cows. It does not trigger the rut. It doesn't do anything of the sort. Um, but does it change daily activity cycles? Yes. Maybe. It, yeah, yes. I mean, it, de 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 <laughs> depending, de 
if if we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about a large private ranch that has almost no uh, disruption in you know there there's no pressure on those elk. You go to Rocky Mountain National Park, they're doing every it, it's just twenty four seven. They don't care. Moon is oh, is is really not a big deal. You go to an over the counter unit that's got major heavy pressure. Okay, now we're now yes. Can you see a little bit more nocturnal activity? Yes, you can. But right. the elk are still there. They're still going to be vocal. They're still going to be in there. They're still going to respond to calls. The only thing that I do when I'm dealing with it, and I don't even talk about a full moon. I'm talking about a bright moon phase. So from that that half moon to full moon to half moon, that's bright at night. But as the moon is rising, it's going to be brighter earlier and later in the in the early evening as it's full moon it's going to be bright all night long and then as that moon is getting smaller it's going to be brighter longer into the morning and so you just have to adjust when you you know if the elk are already and, and this is the thing is i don't really give two rips about the moon because like jay you and i've talked about even in unit nine where you've got mass i mean tons of elk Great age class. You can get out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. And they can be pressured. But even there, even when the moon is not in play, you're still wanting to get out there one, two hours before it even sliver of daylight. So, no, I keep my schedule the exact same. Maybe I'll anticipate the, you know, the hope to have a little bit more activity you know, at certain, you know, in the evening on one side or the morning on the other side. But I'm going to take advantage of if the elk are out there at night and they're talking, well, then get your butt out there and listen to them and follow them and figure out where they are and then get a game plan for the next day. They might be in their bedding areas earlier than yeah. usual, but okay, get, if the wind is good, those midday hours can be phenomenal. But you, yeah. I don't change a thing that I'm doing with my calling. I don't change a thing that I do with my strategies. All I do is I just adjust where those elk are at the, t you know, so just get out there and hunt. Go. One thing I would say about the moon being full on the 20th is the fact that they have already had a chance to kind of get into it. And they've already kind of started going and rutting and, and bugling and getting into their, their routine. I have seen when the full moon is at the beginning when they should be just starting to kind of get going. I've seen it make the hunt very, very slow because they're kind of just getting into it. There's a full moon and it makes them daylight pretty lackadaisical. So I, I, while I do agree with you on you have to just change your tactics and it doesn't really necessarily matter. They're still going to be there. You can still work them. I have seen it when they're when they are yet to kind of get going, that it makes it extra slow. Okay, here's so, and here's when when people are limited to seven days, that's when they're looking at it going. You know, I might go sure. when there's better daytime activity. Yeah, and and I understand that if you have the flexibility to do it and you can plan, then then okay, maybe. Um, and the reason why what you're saying, Jay, uh, what you've seen is that's absolutely the case. Uh, I've always said that the full moon basically enhances whatever behavioral stage they are in. Because if I and I, I haven't re, I haven't looked at it in a while, I think it's the serotonin. But yeah, the the moon can 
the, the, the brighter light in the evening is going to change some of the hormones that they're dealing with. But basically, it just it doesn't change estrocycling. cycling. What it does is change that 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 activity level. You know, so if they're getting ramped up, a full full moon will kick them in the pants, and they'll be like, here we go. But if they're not, if they're late, you know, it's, and here's the thing: is it, you know, people always say, "Oh, well, should I go with the full moon?" I would rather not. I don't care about the full moon. Tell me what the pressure cycle is going to be during that week. Are we going to have high pressure? Are we going to have low pressure cycle weather systems coming in? That's going to change the behavior way more than what a moon phase does. So if you've got a pressure cycle coming through there that changes it, and yeah, no. I, so do you like high pressure for more activity and more consistent activity no, or low I, pressure? Right now, I'm I'm torn because I've been seeing both, but I've 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 tried to be paying attention to it. Um, I like having the change in pressure. I have not seen consistent activity at a high pressure, and I have not con- seen consistent activity at low pressures. It seems when you've got those changes in those pressure cycles, it seems to be a little bit better. I mean, I remember, again, there's another video on the uh, elk module. Here I am on the fence line in Unit 9 on the fence line of Grand Canyon National Park on September 27th. Which and side I just of the let fence? The- doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just there. I'm, the camera's rolling. Oh, I did. I just, I just sat there with the camera rolling. I said, just listen to this. And it was just, all you could hear was the crickets. I mean, there was nothing. And, and you know how the park is. I mean, the park is like Rocky Mountain National Park. There, there should be bulls in there just going nuts, screaming. September 27th, not a peep. But we had just low pressure after low pressure after low pressure that just kept coming through there. You couldn't buy a bugle. It was just brutal. But it's when, it seems as though it's when those changes are happening where it's a little bit better. Whitetails, it's interesting. Whitetails seem to be a little bit different. It, it, there's a really good, uh, at least where I'm at, and I've heard this from someone else before, where they say when the temperature and the pressure meet, that's when you want to be out in the field. So if you put your temperature graph on the top and then you put your barometric pressure graph underneath it, as your temperature is dropping or bottoming out, if you have a ridge of high pressure right there to where those two, those two just kind of come up and meet, you had better be in your ground blind. You better be in a tree stand because the deer are going to be just moving. That is abs- – I will absolutely – for all my hunts and my personal hunt and all my hunters, I will look at that hard. But for elk, man, it seems it seems there's there's just different factors in play. But no, the the barometric pressure absolutely affects it much more than the moon does, in my opinion. Next question, Chris, you hike in a couple hours before sunrise. Often, are you using a white headlamp light or red green? <laughs> yeah, just if you have a white lamp. Okay, no. I, I won't even joke about that because it's it. No, 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 no. Do not put a, do not, do not, do not, do not use a white headlamp. Jeez, OP, you could see that for, my, I mean, like literally miles. I mean, you could be on the top of the mountain. I can tell you right now how many times that I'll be up. I will be in the valley, up on the ridge, in a staging area where I should be able to hear elk. And I know when everybody's coming up the trail because here come the white headlamps and they're they're many many hundreds of yards down the trail in the timber here come the white headlamps looking and you know the same thing with green 
people say all the time, oh, green doesn't ruin your, your uh, uh, night vision. doesn't matter. You can see green from a long distance away. Now, we can have a discussion whether elk see green or not, but they darn well see white. And I can tell you, in pressured areas, you if they get used to people coming up the ridge or coming up a main pack trail and that white headlamp starts going, they'll just peel right off to the side. They're like, nope, we're out. So if, if, if I use a headlamp and this is one I've been criticized, I, I usually have pretty good night vision. If I use a headlamp, it's always a red lens. If I'm going to be coming up into elky areas if i get down in, into a place where there's just no elk and it's a very technical part of the trail i might kick my you know headlamp on my white light on but i'm going to cover it up with my hands so it's just a barely enough white to where i can see detail but no do not hike in with a white light i don't even like the green light if you have to hike in use a, a red light what's that i was just taking your picture oh <laughs> getting <laughs> next getting question animated. Northern Alberta this year, we got Chris on a good day here. Northern Alberta this year, we are setting records for how dry it is. Past 10 years, wallows I've hunted have four-foot thistle this year. My plan is to solely find any water sources uh, that can be good. Anything else I can do to help this year how dry it is? Find the feed. Where's the best? Where's the? Even though there, you don't have water that's daylighted, are there places in, in the area that you hunt that have higher soil moisture than other places? Because if you can find a little, if it has a little bit higher soil moisture, I would assume, depend, I don't know your habitats, but you, if you're talking up northern Alberta, I'm going to guess the vast majority of the grasses and forbs that you're dealing with there are, are going to be cool season grasses which means they're probably going to respond a little bit better to higher soil moisture. So that's what I would be. He's right. Find the water. And then the next part after that is, okay, find the water and then find those little cool, dark pockets. And where are those little pockets of better forage versus everywhere else? Okay. Next question. How far do uh, most bulls travel once they shed their velvet? completely habitat dependent so i've seen bulls that stay in the same spot all summer they summer right there and they shed their velvet right there and they stay right there and then i've seen bulls in arizona that shed their velvet and they go 30 miles they're in unit 10 and they go to seven west they're in seven west they go to unit nine they go from unit nine to unit like they're just go um and and quite honestly and all and there's uh, research that I just was reading a paper the other day that was saying that they actually, well, it was from Starkey. They actually were looking at movement of, of different densities. And yeah, even in high density areas where the forage quality decreased quicker, there was a lot more commingling of bulls versus cows than there was when you had a low density and there was really good forage across the landscape. Once there's really good forage, they can segregate. They could, there it's just, they get more, chance to do whatever the hell they want so it really depends on the the density of elk you're dealing with the forage quality of that you're dealing with and the habitats that you're dealing with uh chris still love the hyperlip double or do you have a new favorite and also let them know you don't just blow the double because i see you blow both yeah yeah yeah. so no the double the only time i use the double is when i'm using uh, when i want to accurately reproduce an assembly mute 
Um, so 90% of my calling is with an open read style call, but I'm going to use a Steve Chappell uh, matriarch. That's my favorite. And then the Steve Chappell uh, trophy wife, that's my second favorite. And then if have I you, need to... Have maybe... you tried the Heartbreaker? No, not yet. Not yet. Really good. Is it good? Really is good. It? It's, got, it's got a lot heavier barrel. It's like, I don't know if it's me- some sort of metal. I don't know if it's aluminum or what it is, but it's it's heavy feeling to your hand, and it's it's nice. I mean... Um, I just got a, I got a couple I'll get trophy one, wives and a couple of um, heartbreakers, and this heartbreaker's sweet. Um, but I do love the matriarch. But uh, tell them the assembly mew. Um, why you use the double? Well, the double is just it, it's because you've got two real thick reeds. You got two reeds, number one, and they're both thick. Uh, it's it gives you such a much deeper tone, more mellow tone to it. Uh, it really does accurately represent a or, or uh, imitate the sound vocal signature of a mature cow doing that vocalization. I've got a video on the website that shows a cow giving that assembly mew, calling her calf to come in to nurse, and you can literally play. You can play her, and then you can grab, especially if you have that the. Uh, hyperlip double with the tone converter in place uh the tone converter in place it, it basically it's a it's a uh a rubberized plastic i don't even know what you call it we it it snaps over that back end of the call it builds back pressure on that call which helps the reeds break a little easier so you don't need as much lip or air pressure but it also tones it down to where it makes it sound like what it cow sounds like when she puts all of her because uh, a cow can vocalize with her mouth open or she can vocalize with her mouth closed and send it all through her nasal cavity. Well, when she does that, it's going to change that vocal signature a little bit. The hyperlip double with that tone converter does both those things just so accurately. You can literally play a cow doing the assembly mew and then you can do it and it's just, it's it's money. It's just dead on. There's, it's just, there it is. So yeah, there is, I, there's no call that does that, that vocalization better than a hyperlip double with a tone converter. And I was just going to um, throw it out there to uh, Steve Chapel and to uh, uh, Jason uh, Phelps. Uh, guys, someone please, uh, other than Primos, come up with an, an, a, a hyperlip double type call. And, and um, I've asked them to. And I know. I, and, but I don't think, I think most people think it's a gimmick. Yeah, I wish, hopefully they'll listen and do it. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on this next question just because I feel like it's further season out than some of these you know imperative questions that we have for this season coming but my first elk hunt second rifle would you throw out some cow calls still um i think it depends on where you're at um i think it you know if there's elk talking or if you have nothing going i don't think it can hurt you uh chris without spending a ton of time on a second yeah. rifle just because we can do this uh to first of all answer is yes the answer is okay. yes <laughs> um i tuned in just to see poppy great she's here she she loves doing these um let's see on the same bull for three years and he has finally blown up to a giant nowhere he has rutted in the past what are the odds of him going to the same area he will be in the same area more than likely unless some feed conditions or water conditions or something does not allow him to enjoy what he's enjoyed there for the last three years but i can't tell you how many times i've seen a bull uh, year after year come back to the same spot and sometimes it's crazy they come back the same day like oh, i saw him on the 24th yep. and guess what boom he comes back 24th same spot it's crazy yep um yep. 
Saw one bull this weekend, fully rubbed and one partially rubbed in Unit 5. Hi, Mike. Good to see you. Um, do bulls that are in one drainage right now usually stay around there until September, given there's cows, feed, and water, south, south central Colorado? Not necessarily. I mean, you can have bulls that are there all summer in one drainage and they rub their velvet and boom, they're gone. And then you've got bulls that are homebodies. We have them on the ranch that literally are, I mean, we have bulls on the ranch that don't go to one end of the ranch or the other. They, you know, they stay in one spot, but they never go to one end. We have bulls on the ranch that will rut on the north, on the south, east, west, and they'll go to every corner. And then specific bulls, you can look for them in one spot and they're never anywhere else. So, I mean, I think, Chris, you want to weigh in on that? All I would say is I don't get caught up on the bulls. You know, uh, you know it, the, pro- the problem comes is... Unless is, he's a giant, then you have to figure out... And, you know, and that's, okay, and that's, where I was, that's exactly where I was going to say is, if you found a giant, now, now okay, that's a different story because don't automatically expect him to be right there. Now, he might be right there early, you know, he, with the cows, but that's the problem is the cows can then split up and start to branch out and if that cow group splits up well he's he's going to choose one and he's going to go with them so you're hoping that the cow group that bonds with him stays where you know stays there otherwise you're going to have to look for him because yeah the, he if the cows are around I, my right now i'd be focusing on where the cow groups are because that's where the the, the bulls are going to start making their way to them and just because you have a bull here and a cow group here doesn't mean this bull doesn't go way over here and find this cow group he, he it that they'll walk by cows to find other cows and go rut where they want to rut i hear it yep. all the time people say oh well there's cows there or if you're talking about mule deer or whitetail oh there's does there not necessarily he could check and stop and check them but very likely he could walk right by him and never pay him attention because for whatever reason he doesn't like them he wants to go to greener pastures but uh would you rather deal with muzzleloader pressure in OTC archery unit but have good bugling or go first week of season, not deal with as much pressure but miss the peak bugling season? I think this is a pretty good question, Chris. Um, I don't. Be nice. Be nice. I don't, I, well, no, I, I, I am. I... I have been maybe unfortunate in my areas because I really don't see much of a difference between the pressure of the first week, second week, third week, fourth week of season. It's just, you're going to have freaking pressure. Well, and and uh, especially and, since the season now starts on September 2nd, maybe you could correct. have made that argument a couple years ago or correct. a handful of years ago when it started on like the last Saturday in, in correct. August, right? Correct. 100%. 100%. Uh, is light cow calling at a water hole set up stupid? I don't think so at all. I think if uh, you're sitting and nothing's going, um, given a few cow calls, uh, those bulls, other cows may be in the distance and might be wanting that reassurance that potentially uh, there's other elk there in the area. So, I mean, even a, even a light bugle or even a good bugle every once in a while, I think one of the things you got to watch is uh, calling too much and then as they cure you know they're curious and they're approaching uh, and then all of a sudden they're not seeing any activity they see the water and it's just dead calm you know it's not being um, you know stirred up I think that will tend to make them 
Uh, nervous. Let's see if Chris is texting me here. Um, Chris, just come back on if, if you get service. Um, but, yeah, I think light calling, just trying to um, pique a bull or cow's curiosity uh, is, is not a bad idea. Let's see here. Going out this weekend for early season in Utah, any recommendations on calling and other tactics? Okay, one of the things, guys, that I really like to do uh, early season is to take a couple of small, like four or five point type antlers with you uh, on your backpack. And when you get in close, if you're able to have someone with you, you know, get behind you and you get up front and have them clank the antlers together. Um, that can be super effective, as well as raking a tree. Um, right now, the bulls, you know, it's the 18th of August, and most of the bulls um, are, are rubbed uh, and rub the velvet off, and then they're going to be rubbing, going around and rubbing and trying to harden their antlers, trying to get the rest of the velvet off. They're trying to now start kind of going and staking out their territory. Um, so raking uh, and uh, raking antlers together also can be super effective, as well as, you know, kind of making blind setups and, and sitting uh, in an area where, and let me thumb through here and see if Chris is, here we go, um, sitting in an area and, uh, you know, doing some blind calling can be advantageous as well. There you are. Are you mobile? Phone got, the phone got too warm, so it just shut the whole thing off. Ah, so you're running the air on it? That's what I'm trying to do right now. It's running the air conditioning on it. So hopefully it's cooled off enough. you got to be kidding me. So I guess I can't have it on my I can't have it on my, my window mount because apparently it gets too warm on the window mount. Oh, man. Where are you? Oh, I'm in behind walmart colorado here in the front <laughs> range is stupid freaking you're, good lord this you're the cre- you're the creepy guy behind walmart month. correct this is this is my whole freaking month man if if something stupid can happen ah it's gonna happen you're the can creepy you guy okay? yeah i hear you fine um right. i've been answering a few questions um there's a question here mike stansfield does mineralization in 30 days mean stronger antlers uh, and less and less breakage. So, uh, no, you know, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no. So that's just what that antler does. So an antler grows. So when an antler starts growing, it's this um, vascular appendage. I mean, it, it's it's and that's why you see all the veins. It's full of blood vessels, and there's keratinization all the way up through it to just give it to some support. But that's why they're so. They're full of nerve endings, they're full of blood vessels, and they're easily broken and they're easily damaged. And that is what is growing. But as it grows, it will start to add some structure to it. But once that entire antler structure is about done growing, that's when all of a sudden the, 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 the blood vessels start to dry up. It's just pumping calcium, magnesium. All those minerals just go in there to harden it up. Um, it, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, oh, it did it in 30 days. No, that's just how a normal antler cycle, antler genesis is about. Um, now, they do throw different minerals in different parts of the, you know, uh, the antler. There, that's a reason why you hear people talk about the ivory tips of the antlers. 
the the tips of those antlers are a much higher density than the bulk of the antler it, it, it itself. Um, but really, mineralization happens every. It just that's just how it happens. The question on whether or not they get brittle or not, I think there's been some discussion about you know in dry years versus wet years. You know how much mineral you know are they able to get full minerals mineralization on it, or is it just you know you know generally weaker than it has been before just because they haven't been able to put as much mineralization in on it. that ends up being due to forage quality and how much forage they have but the cycle is the cycle so chris while you were um cooling your phone down got a question here going out this weekend for early season in utah any recommendations on calling and other tactics i was talking about um, clanking, you know, four and five point antlers together, having someone behind you getting close to some elk, and you know, most bulls when they hear antlers, they just want to come see what it is. So that's a good tactic. I also talked about raking a tree, and then I kind of started getting into a little bit of blind calling. Um, anything you might add there to early season Utah? You know, Utah starts right now, like fifteenth of of I know. I August. Would, I wish I could be out there. I wish I could be out there. I love this time. So, yeah, bull vocalization strategies can actually be really good this time of year. And I'm not talking about screaming your head off, you know, bugling, you know, dominant bugles or challenge bugles, all that. Just, you know, just the general bull vocalizations, moans, groans, huff, you know, whines, all that, all sorts of different stuff. Like you said, Jay, you know, sounded like a couple bulls sparring. Awesome. Raking, yes. But if you're going to use cow calling strategies, yeah, do not hesitate to, to lean heavy on the calf vocalizations to start. And, and we talked about that, I think, in the last one. Um, and when I get home, I'll be able to upload that other video that we that you and I did on uh, talking about, you know, you, you know, calf vocalizations. And the we got a really good one. We're waiting for Chris Dude, to it's upload freaking awesome, it. But... Man. It's it's awesome. It, it will be. It, I'm hopefully be get, able to get it uploaded this weekend on the on both. You know, the audio for you, Jay, but the video will be up on the elk module here this yeah. whole, th this weekend. But, yeah. um, no, all of those things are in play in that. I mean, the only thing is, is just do not feel like you're going to go out there and get aggressive with your bugling strategies. That's not And have them come right storming now. in and have yeah. them just come rushing in. Most of the time they're going to come that in is. kind of easy and just checking things out. Let's go to the next question here. Uh, Colorado OTC archery, philosophy number one, find the elk and avoid the crowds. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes to both. Yeah. Find the elk and avoid the crowds. There we go. That's a good start. How much moving versus glassing do you do during the late season, mid-November? Uh, so if you're asking me, uh, do a lot of sitting on one point and glassing and, you know, giving it a good hour or so, and then I try and have subsequent other glassing points that I can bounce to. So I have kind of a primary glassing point that I feel like I can look into good country, and then I always like to have a couple places where I can pop up here, look for 30 minutes, pop up here, look for 30 minutes. So the first time I glass, it's for about an hour. Then I move, then my periods of time of glassing kind of slow down or uh, speed up because I'm just trying to catch, you know, that one bull that's up and moving. And if I'm sitting there looking and they're already bedded down, then I'm bouncing trying to trying to get where I can see stuff. Chris? Yeah. yeah yep. 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 Okay. Um, early season OTC Colorado elk, non-vocal, target feed areas, 
or or question mark water question mark how much water's in your area first question if you if it's been getting pounded with rain and there's water everywhere well then okay that's a that's a that's a non-starter then you most of colorado's been getting pounded yeah so if that's the case then you're gonna have water everywhere then okay then you then if you have the ability to glass like jay was just talking about use use your eyes and, and glass and try to figure out where they are in those feeding areas and then if you can't do that then yes go try to figure out where the what i'm going to do at that point then is where the sanctuary areas where 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 can those elk go where they're not going to be disrupted by people because if it's been getting rain everywhere you're probably going to get good vegetative growth cool season vegetative growth across the mountain as well so at that point then i'm going to be trying to figure where's the sanctuary area where, where are the elk ready to go to get away from pressure that's and what about wallows, Chris? There. What about wallows? I mean, it, the wallows can absolutely work. I mean, it, you know, the rut's going to be kicking on, and you got bulls that are big. They've got fat on them. They got heavy coats starting to get, so they get a little warm, and they still want to wallow. But it, the problem is, is if you have a lot of wet weather and rainstorms every day, it's not as big of a draw. And a lot of times, they're going to use them, you know, sporadically. It's not like you can just sit on them and, and you know, if all of a sudden you get a dry spell. Or just a massive heat wave that comes yeah. through during your seat, you know. Okay, absolutely game changer. But if it just stays where every day at three o'clock it just the, it gets cloudy and it pours, yeah, just just go in there and call them. This is the second question I've gotten uh, here. Backpack tax, good or bad thing, long term for hunters? I don't even know what he's talking about. Backpack tax? Do you? Where's is there some the tax on backpack tax? Oh, are you are you talking about what? Oh, I wonder if he's talking about. Yeah. So, okay, we're we're, we're jumping in the political spectrum here. Yeah. So, if we're talking about a like a teaming with wildlife thing, so Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson, you know, sporting goods, you know, rifles, bows, arrows, fishing rods, all that type, we have a tax on it. That tax goes to uh, pay for hunting and fishing. There's always been this push to have the non-consumptive user groups okay. to pitch in as well. So binoculars and, you know, backpacks and tents and sleeping pads and that type of stuff, man, it's a, I, me personally, I am not a fan of it. Um, and it's purely selfish because I, you know, if we just real briefly, I talked about this in a couple of other podcasts, uh, recently, man, we are a tight, let's just say off the, let's say on the high end, we're only 10% of the population. And the other 90% starts to actually pitch in and, and pay, quote unquote, pay their fair share. All of a sudden, there is no void. We, we don't have leverage as sportsmen. Right now, a lot of our hunting opportunities, I, I'm sorry to say this, a lot of agencies, there's this feeling that, well, we have to cater to hunters because that's how we pay our bills. If all of a sudden they're not paying their bills by hunters, well, then they don't have to cater to hunters. Makes so, sense. No, I personally, and this is just a selfish one for me. I'm not. A, I am not a fan of that idea. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, Nathan Goodworth here. After the big uh, herd bulls have kicked satellite bulls out of the herd, which method do you prefer and why? Spot and stock, or get in and call? You want? You want me to jump on first? I, mm-hmm. Dude, I love to call, man. I, 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 for me, it's not about killing something. For me, it's it's getting to play the game, I and this is dead serious. I would, I if if I had a three eighty bull in front of me, and the only way to kill him was to spot and stalk and sniper him, 
or I had a 330 bowl in front of me that I could call and I could put him right here and I could make it quote unquote make him do what I wanted him to do that 330 bowl would be dead that fast I I enjoy the chess match the intellectual play between myself and an animal I'm always going to default to call it that's just my that's just my personal bias you someone says so um yeah, I mean, it totally. Jimmy's just gonna do. He's like, I'm not answering that one. <laughs> yeah, someone says I'm dodge. He's he's question dodging like politicians. Uh, it depends what, what you want to do. Way? If you if you want to kill a big bull, then then do what it takes to kill it. If you want interaction, okay. then okay. Um, so ma- so maybe I maybe I misunderstood his question. I I thought no. he was just asking what I would do. I guess if if you're talking, no, about he's saying that, he's saying he's saying the big bull has kicked the he? satellites out. Yeah. So, so he's he's an isolated bull sure. with cows. Um, which method do you prefer, spot and stock, or get in? I think you answered it fine. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 you know, yes, you can. I mean, listen, Dan Evans kills a piss pile of giant elk every year, and his preferred method, if unless he's changed, is letting them bugle, letting them just do their rut stuff, and he just slips in there and zip it done. So if you want to kill something and, and all you care about is putting an animal on the ground and you don't care how you do it, if that bull is over there bugling and going nuts and you can slip in and sniper him and just shoot him, do it. Calling is just a tool. You know, so I, I prefer to use the tool. I would rather try to call him in. But if you can slip in and, and sniper him, go for it. But if that doesn't work, then or you just can't quite finish it at that point, well, then go. Then, okay, fine. Then, then use your calls. Hunting thick timber first week of September. Any good calling tactics would be appreciated. So he needs uh, row hunting resources, stra- calling strategies, targeted strategies. I highly recommend go on the elk module <laughs> because Chris outlines and lays all this stuff out here. Um, give him a and, little and taste, Chris. Is, and that's the thing. My, the, the big point here is... There, it's not magic. There, there's no magic bullet. There's not this ooh secret thing to do. If you know anything about me, you know darn well I talk about fundamentals of basic elk vocalization. What do they do day in, day out, speaking to one another when they need something? That is what I go in. I do not play to testosterone to start. I start in on the fundamentals. Lost muse, assembly muse, maybe some wines. I don't care if I'm in Arizona in the Big Pines, if I'm in New Mexico, if I'm in Colorado OTC, if I'm in a limited entry unit in Wyoming, it doesn't matter. I'm hunting elk, so I'm going to speak to them like elk speak to one another. I'm going to start at a target. Most of the time, it's going to be a targeted calling strategy. Starting with lost mute, this is this is when I'm actually working the bulls. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to use a bugle, maybe to try to get you know a contact bugle, you know, try to get a you know a location out there, or you know, just get somebody to to sound off. But when I'm going to work them, I don't I don't care if I'm talking August fifteenth, September first, September fifteenth, or November fifteenth. I speak to them the way they speak. July fifth, January fifth. September 5th, you come in at that level, like Jay, you said, the targeted. Lost Muse, Assembly Muse. Where are you? Come here. Done. That, I mean, it's it, 
I know it just it's frustrating because every there's so many people out there marketing their ideas. There's they're marketing a call. They're marketing a magic their, bullet. Their program, and they're like, "This is the this is the secret. This is what you. This is all you need to do." You're bullshit. No, wrong. It, it, what does an elk do? Answer. Ask yourself that. What does an elk do? And how can I reproduce it? Done. End of discussion. If you are doing what an elk does when he or she does it, and you sound like them, and you you you're, you make a really relevant uh, vocal argument, they're going to do what you're asking them to do. So it's no go. go you can go on the the rowing resource website. But it's right super now. expensive, Chris. It's, it's thousands of dollars. Twenty twenty five dollars is going to break you right now. It's just going to that's just the end of your season. You're just going to have to plan again for next year, I think. Yeah, seriously, man. I, and I do. I've got a little crash course in there because people ask all this to, all the time. They come in about now. They're like, oh, what do I do? Okay, there you go. Go in. You need to understand behavior. You know, how do they communicate with one another? How do they move across the landscape? How do you figure out your setups? Because it doesn't matter how good of a caller you are. If you don't have your setups right, you're just going to see elk, and that's about it. So understand, go to look at the first section there that talks about behavior, go through it. Understand how they communicate, why, and what they're doing on the landscape. And then you jump straight into, yeah, I watched, it. there's a full nine videos on cow vocalizations. There's another eight or nine videos on bull vocalization. But I've, I've even set aside these little crash courses. Here's how you do the target strategy. Here's how you do the loss muse. Here's how you do the assembly muse. Here's what you do with wines. You got it. Yes. Now jump into the elk, you know, the elk hunter strategy app. Now watch me do it every single time, no matter what setting I'm in, in and put them like seven steps in front of me. So don't, don't overthink it. Just, just, just follow <laughs> it and trust it. <laughs> All right, guys, keep putting your questions there. Next question. How about answering early season versus hunting during muzzleloader? And I wonder if he means, uh, you know, early season archery hunting in Colorado before the muzzleloaders start around the 10th or 11th of, of Colorado. Talk. Let's assume he's talking about that. I'm just going to defer to what I just said. No difference. Seriously, uh, you're, you're, you're going to have to come. You're, you're going to have to engage that animal. No matter where you are in that hunting that hunting season, the only thing that you're going to you're going to have to figure out that the animal that you're engaging are they on their own or are they with cows. And are they pressured? After that, I mean, we, we, we have no idea. You could run into opening week opening week this week or this year. So it starts on September 2nd. Well, that first weekend of, of September is, is Labor Day weekend. You're going to have a pile of people in the woods. So you could have absolutely extremely pressured animals right off the get-go. But then again, by third week, depending on where you are in loader. You may find a pocket of group, a pocket of elk that maybe not as pressure. Again, don't just fundamentals, man. Fundamentals. Start with the fundamentals of communication. Work your way up as far as intensity and aggression, and figure out what the bull is because you don't know the bull that you're dealing with until you engage them. You don't know if they're an aggressive bull. You don't know what their what their uh, personality is. You don't know what the if they have cows, if they don't have cows. What, how old is he? You don't know any of that until you engage him. So start with the fundamentals and build up. Right, and one of the things I would tell um, archers is maybe start acting a little bit more like guys that hunt with a rifle or hunt with a muzzleloader. And hear me out on this because I hear Chris going, hmm. 
Um, no, 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 no. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're trying, if you finally draw on this muzzleloader tag, and now you can shoot at these animals at 100 or 150 yards, let's say, you need to be a little bit more using your binoculars, hear an elk bugle, try and spot them, go, okay, that's not even a bull that I want. Let's go to a different area. I think as archers and as callers, we kind of get ingrained to, we hear an elk, we're going to go and mess with him. Well, you could waste an hour with that elk, and that day is shot, and you don't have any other elk to go to. Um, for those guys out there that have shot a bunch of bulls and they're trying to shoot better bulls and trying to, you know, up, you know, and, and beat their own success and, you know, 330, now it's 340, now it's 350 or whatever, you're going to have to use process of elimination of putting your eyes on them. That's not a bull I want to go after. Let's look for something else. Okay, that's not a bull. That's not a bull. And it's just a numbers game. And then, boom, you find one. Okay, now I have one to play with that if he comes in, I want to shoot. So don't be wasting your time on elk and then there's some guys out there that are listening that go i'll just shoot any elk that comes in and that's Correct. fine i'm, I'm not saying Correct. i'm just saying if you are one of those guys that maybe drew a tag and you want to be a little bit more choosy start acting a little more choosy use your eyes and be a little more picky about where you actually go and try and engage an elk if you can look across the drainage and be like he's not even a bull i want to shoot go find another one don't waste but time. if you but if he is a bull you want to shoot, you can see him. The other thing, too, is just because you hear an elk bugle doesn't mean you need to bugle back at it. doesn't mean that you need to call to him from a distance. Not we, Jay, you and I and everybody, everybody that talks about elk calling always talks about getting close. Getting close before you start calling. There's so many people that feel like, oh, I heard a bull, I heard a bull bugle. Uh, bugle. I need a bugle at him. Get him to respond. Why? Calling is a tool. Sometimes the best thing to do is if you hear a bull bugling and he's just bugling and he's doing his own thing, keep your mouth shut. Just close the distance. Don't get don't let him know you're you're somebody out there. Don't let, let him, him stay in his pattern. If he's just bugling, Correct. let him keep bugling and you get in there close and look at him. You get in close and look at him or get in close and shoot him or get in close and you're like, okay, he's right there, but I can't see him. I don't have a shot. Now is when I need to use my tools to try to influence him to make a move my way. Don't set yourself up for failure just by jumping in blindly, trying to make some sound and, and just completely go, oh, crap, there's a hunter over there. I need to now we I need to shut down. I got to go quiet or we need to move off or what. No. Uh, next question. Will the August moisture in the southwest state. Uh, will this forage improvement make for an early rut or better than normal rut? Um, I think in Arizona specifically and, you know, down by the odd six where we have really good moisture, I think the body condition of the elk is in good shape and that the cows are, you know, fat and sassy, if you will. And I think from my experience that that usually turns into animals feeling good it turns into normal cycling periods and yes most of the time when you have good monsoonal moisture it turns into a bugle fest um, a rut fest a scream fest a meatball fest whatever you call it that's my experience chris yeah, and it really depends on the type of forage that you're dealing with. You're dealing. We talked, Jay, you and I talked about this, I believe, in the last one, the forage quality. You know, if we're talking about warm season grasses like blue grass, it's it's most of that blue grass is already 
it's going to it'll stay green and it'll it'll have some good forage quality, but it's not going to really explode. Your your cool season grasses like your blue grasses and fescues and that type of stuff, you can get a really good flourish on you know really good green up on that. So that can kind of affect things. But no, I mean the most of the areas that are getting rain or that had some rain, the forage quality is going to be pretty good, and and I don't think it's going to kick anything off as far as making anything early. It's just going to hopefully, hopefully, it just allows those cows to have enough body condition to them to where they can cycle on their normal, normal cycle. Question here. I can't find the cows on my unit and my hunt starts September 1st in Utah. I have pictures of bulls since July. No cows. What's he do, Chris? I don't know the terrain. Is is, uh, Is he talking about? being able to get up on places in glass or is he just using is he down in the timber and, and fixed up where he's using game cameras and he's only finding I, I i don't know uh the habitat that he's in but um i'd be looking yeah, other, it, other places I, it sounds like he's it, in a it, bull pasture and if you're only yeah, getting it, summer bull elk pictures you're in a bull pasture and likely go miles, i'd rather go yeah, find a elk. cow pasture go go yeah, find go, where it, all the cows are you might have to go miles. He may just be looking in this basin and that basin, and, and, and he. Some, and, and I'm not saying this is what he's doing. I, I've seen this with sheep hunting as well, or goat hunting, where you finally find a, a, a band of sheep. You, you've been scouting and scouting. You can't find anything. You finally find a band of sheep, but there's really nothing in there that's a mature or goats. But yet you just kind of keep coming back there because at least you get to see sheep. You need to leave. You know, and go look somewhere else, and you may be fine, you know, spending days of seeing nothing but rock. And then you're like, well, but I want to go back and look at those. No, you don't want to go back and look at those sheep because you already know that there's nothing there that you want. So sometimes people will find bulls in an area, and maybe there's a really nice bull or two in there. And then they're like, okay, so I'm going to watch this. Well, I'm going to go over here. Oh, I don't find any cows. I'm going to come back. I don't come. No, leave. You, you, you may have to go miles in several basins up over the mountain and completely different area and just, okay, you found those. That's great. You need to go somewhere else and look because those, those cows could be miles away. And then, but once you find them, now you're going to be, it, that, those bulls will start making their way that way. You can have the cows bust up too. That's true. But the bulls will start making their way that way. Uh, any tips for recovering from a poorly made bugle or cow call? Let them settle. I just, okay, poorly Don't made. follow it up with another bad one. There you go. But the, by the same token, though, okay, if, let, let that, here's how we answer this one. If, <laughs> if, if the, if, 80% of your your calls are unpredictable and variable and some of them and, and 80% of them kind of come out wrong and not the way you wanted them to okay a start practicing some more now just don't practice bad habits but just start try to get yourself a little bit better and more consistent so that way when you pick up your your call you can make a sound if the vast majority of your sounds are kind of unpredictable and you end up with a bad sound maybe you just stop calling for several minutes or 30 minutes or an hour let those elk settle down grab a different style call maybe a different open read style or grab a different a mouth diaphragm or something so you have a different vocal signature maybe try to move positions a little bit and then start over again and, and rework them 
Now, if if you're a good caller and 90% of your vocalizations are just right on the money and you can execute them and you just make a mistake, just just keep moving through it. Don't even don't even stop on it. Don't even act like anything happened. Don't if you, if you make a squeak or a weird, don't just go and then stop and then everything go quiet. Yeah, and they just look up. Yeah, they're like, "What happened to you? Did she just get at by a lion or what?" You know, <laughs> just just work right through it. There's there's cows and bulls that sound horrible. Just keep the continuity of what you're doing and move right through it, and just get yourself back into a, a good cycling of calling, and then phase out or do whatever you want. But it depends on on what type of of caller you are. Do you think? Uh, hey, yes, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I I make a bad call every once in a while, and I just. Either give it just a little bit and go right in and make a sweet sound, and it you know it doesn't matter. I think um, you know switch calls too. You know if you've got one, especially on those open read calls, it, sometimes every once in a while they can get wet. You can make a squawk. Just I mean I always carry two or three of them and just switch calls, and you know they, they don't even think anything about it because I mean how many times, Chris, you've been out there and you hear kind of a funny sound and then you hear a, a sweet sound right after it. You're yeah, like, oh, right. She at- just. Yep. She had a piece of grass in her mouth, and it just didn't make make the right sound. Yep. Um, yep. Chris, I've got here, I credit Chris with getting my first bull. I signed up for his elk module, was new to elk hunting. He provided me with a great education on elk vocalizations, how and why elk calls, and what they mean. Um, that's awesome. Uh, due, due to last year's Colorado fires, I'm forced to find a new unit for OTC early season archery. Sounds like low density elk, um, low density hunters is a better move than high density elk and high density hunters. So, Chris, would you go to an area that maybe doesn't have as much elk and maybe doesn't have as many people than high elk densities and high elk um, pressure, people pressure? Yeah, I mean, I, that's a hard one. Um, if, if the low-density area was such that you knew where those elk were going to be, yes. Because uh, that – or 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 I had a plenty of time to go find them. That's the issue. When you're in those low-density areas, hope hopefully you have low-density hunters. That's not always the case because if it's easy terrain and it's close to – you know, if we're talking Colorado, it's, not, you know, it's, it's close to Colorado Springs or close to Denver or whatever – you're not going to be easy terrain, close to people. You're going to have a lot of people there. Um, So if it's low density, do you have the ability to locate those animals? If if that's the case, then maybe. But just understand, you might be out there spending many, many days trying to find those elk. So at that point, I guess the, the big thing was, if that's what you want to do, good, okay, that makes sense. But just make sure that you have the tools once you do find an elk that you can capitalize on every opportunity that you're given um, because it may take you five days to figure out where they are. You know, conversely, in another unit that has a lot of elk, yeah, you might have a lot of hunters, but that's the thing is if you've got a lot of elk around, oftentimes you can just All it takes one. And, yeah, it's all it takes is one, and, and you can oftentimes figure out how to get around people even though there's a there's a lot of them around. So, it, it man, it's a, it's a six and one, half dozen the other. It all depends on how much time you have and – do you know where those elk are in those low density areas? Uh, another shout out. Uh, don't forget to mention row hunting resources app. Great tool to use. Um, oh yeah. Great, great stuff, Chris. Uh, I'm a first year elk hunter and don't hear, um, it just moved on me. I don't hear many people talking about late season archery early to mid November. Do you have any tips? 
yeah, I don't want to spend a bunch of time on that because I want to cover the rut stuff right now. But um, let me let me answer of, it. Okay, let, just go do exactly what I said. Again, if you if you follow my philosophy, I'm not playing to testosterone. I don't need to. to my strategy is not how I call and why I call the way I call is not dependent upon September. I use this exact same thing in November on late hunts as I do. It, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Again, we're talking about fundamental base core vocalizations that elk use to speak to one another. So if you have a late season hunt, go onto the website, learn the cow vocalizations, and especially the cow vocalizations at that point, especially pay attention to the calf vocalization stuff that, that's in there and that will be in there from the conversation Jay and I just had. It's irrelevant. You don't need to play to testosterone at any time, whether it not not as a first play. You can use fundamentals in August. You can use everyday language. Every day. You can you can use it in January. So yeah. anyway. But I think also um, those later hunts they don't tend to vocalize as much. So as nope. a late season archery hunter, uh, especially in Arizona, I think this hunter's from Arizona. Um, ah, okay. A lot of guys really start focusing on water. A lot of guys really start focusing on feed and where they're shading up and bedding up for the afternoon. Um, Using glass. archery, archery elk hunting in November in Arizona can be extremely tough because they're most of the time they don't move very much and they live in very very thick, nasty, brushy canyons and getting close to them is hard. Um, we can talk about that later here after. Yeah, the my run. mind my mind went right to uh, late season cow hunts, but yeah, you're right. You're you're right. My mind might have gone in a different and direction especially this, archery this too. Um, mm -hmm. Difference in style slash techniques between hunting mountain states and hunting the canyon country of Arizona, like units up on the rim. So, Chris, I think you said it. You don't really change much. No, and and you know even on the rim. If they've never been on the rim, they're going to be surprised at how big those pines are and how open they are, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is, guys, you've got to find elk to play with. And that that's the same whether you're in the mountains or out in the flats in the pinion juniper. And a lot of it is feed and water. And once you find them, um, they're just elk. I mean, they, they're going to act very similar whether they're in the pines or in as far as vocalizations they're going to act fairly similar um but to find them you know obviously get up high in glass uh go check the water holes go check for sign you know take take good long walks and try and find where there's trails and where you see lots of fresh tracks and sign and droppings and elk or elk yeah just adjust your setups accordingly to the terrain yeah the got a, a few questions here um and guys keep putting your questions there but i've got some that also came in earlier on instagram um how often do you guys call as you move through the trees when unsure where the elk are so you don't know where the elk are how often do you just kind of call and, and are trolling <clears throat> for me it all depends on how many people are in the area um if if i feel like i'm in a relatively uh not, it doesn't have to be remote if no one else is around and i know the elk are there somewhere 
I'm sorry, because I, I interrupt you. Did you see that? I just couldn't help but laugh. We, we talked about nose jammer on the last one, so I, I, I throw that in the same realm. I, it's all nose jammer. I kept um, trying to fight the smile off, and and then finally I just <laughs> laughed out loud. Go ahead. But no, I just if if, if I know, uh, yeah, exactly. If I, if I know that I'm I'm kind of out there by myself, and I know where the elk are there somewhere, and I have a purpose for where I'm going, then then I might call, and then then I might actually call as I'm walking. Number one, number two, I'm going to be basing that off of what i'm you know what what's the environment around me it, it's one of those days where the you know the birds are singing the ravens are you know flying around and the hawks are flying around and the squirrels are dropping pine cone bombs out on on top of you if the woods is alive then then i'm going to be a little bit more freer on on possibly calling as i'm moving but we all know that there's those days where you don't even want to step on wet grass cuz it's too loud well if that's the type of uh, day that i'm dealing with i'm not going to say squat most likely so you really got to play it by what you're seeing and hearing in the woods around you and then play it smart. You know, are there other hunters in the area? Are they going to hear you and then come right up in your back pocket? Or do you even know if there's elk around? If, if, if that's the case, then yeah, all those factors go into whether or not I, I call as I move. But I've got plenty of examples uh, in my videos that where I'm calling and moving. Uh, how to increase your chances for broadside shot, not frontal when calling solo. Yeah, didn't we talked about that one last time, didn't we? Or was that on that video that we? No, I think that was on the last live that we did. Um, yeah, you just need to get your setup. You know, just make sure your that doorway. You know, you set up to where when they come in and they pause, just don't take the shot until they decide to take another step and either move through uh, and just keep on coming on through because there's plenty of times where that's going to happen. I mean, most people, as soon as that do that elk hits that doorway. They just feel pressured to shoot them there. You don't have to shoot them there. Just let them keep moving. They're going to pause. They're going to look. And oftentimes, if, they, if you've done your job right, they're just going to continue to walk through and just kind of follow them and let them just eat one broadside. Or if they start to get a little squirrely and they're like, nah, I'm going to leave or whatever, as they turn to move, you know, move away, either give them a little bit of a vocalization just to kind of stop them and just kind of get them to, you know, lock up in the tracks, maybe get broadside there, or let them, if they do spook a little bit, let them trot, 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 let them turn. A lot of times they're going to trot a couple steps, they're going to turn, and they're going to look back. And a lot of times you can get a quartering away shot there. But um, I just prefer to get my bow set up such that I can take a frontal or a, a quartering two shot and just have my arrow go from the front right throughout the other end, uh, other end of him and uh, kill them that way. But, no, you don't have to kill them as soon as they stop in the doorway. Just let them continue to move through. Chris, uh, I've got a question here. Explain, see you first, hear you second, smell you third. That's what's on the video. That's what's on the website. That's 25 a, bucks. Yeah. Pony up. Yeah, the, 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 the see you first principle is based on how elk want to see. They're, they're a visual species. So everybody talks about vocalization. But everybody forgets, most everybody forgets about all the, the just the vast majority, about 80 plus percent of their communication is all visual. So and I, I, I go into it in depth on the website about the fact that this is why people talk about all the time, well, that that bull's going to swing downwind. Not if you set yourself upright, he won't. And if you're calling correctly, he won't because he won't think anything of he, he won't think there's any reason 
to swing downwind because you, you just no play to what they want. They want to see you first. They want to hear you second. And they want to smell you third. When, it ta- when we're talking about communication, not when we're talking about danger. Danger, they want to smell you first. But if you don't set yourself up to where they think there's danger, they don't default to that position. Now, in, in heavily hunted over-the-counter units, yes, you can have, especially some of those younger age class bulls, you know, that have been beat up and pushed out and run around and have run into other hunters before. Okay, maybe they do. They, they get a little cautious of everything and they want to come in downwind. But again, if you set yourself up correctly and you call correctly, you will greatly reduce the likelihood of them thinking anything is wrong and then wanting to swing downwind. And if you're cognizant of the fact that the bulls might be, you know, pressured and want to swing downwind, then set yourself up to where the doorway is such to where when he wants to try to swing downwind, you get a shot opportunity on it. So another question here, would you recommend hang a decoy on a tree a few yards back when hunting solo and calling in a bull or should you keep the decoy with you? Yeah, I, people can go back and we, we yeah, well, there's two. We, so we had a good in-depth discussion on this last time, and I've got a complete video regarding decoys on the website. Um, quite honestly, this is a this is a, a philosophical di- question, I guess. You know, for my my philosophy on calling, I've I've heard this from numerous people that call have learned to call the way I do. Ditch the decoy work the setup and and you're going to have a hell of a lot of uh success with it now with that being said if you are the type of person that that feels they need a decoy the difference the different decoys are going to create a different uh outcome for you but yes if if you feel that you need to use a decoy then if it's a stat if it's a type of decoy that's a static decoy then yes if you if you want to put it off to the side of you and behind you a ways and, and have it static I kind of recommend the elk butt decoy from Montana decoy because it makes sense that it's a static decoy and not moving. Um, set that off to the side of you and back away from you if you, if you want, but make sure it still can be seen from that doorway. Um, if you want to have the decoy with you, then I would choose a, the style of decoy that's going to allow you to have some motion in it. Excuse me. I like the heads up style decoy because it's tiny. It's a head and the neck of a, of an elk. And if I need a little bit of movement, like I just I, I just pick the head up of an elk out behind a tree, and then I can put the head back down, just kind of like an elk picking her head up and putting it back down feeding, having that dynamic movement can sometimes help. If you want, a uh, buddy of mine owns Ultimate Predator decoys, awesome uh, decoy that fits on the, the – both the heads-up decoy can stick on your bow and the Ultimate Predator decoy can stick on your bow. Ultimate Predator decoy, what I like about that one is – if you are the type of person that wants a more aggressive style or you're going to be moving in or spot and stalk or moving towards that animal, that decoy is awesome for that uh, style of hunting because you're moving and you're moving towards the animal. That style of decoy in a static fashion, sometimes, man, it'll just lock them up because the ears are not moving. A, a cow elk, when she's got, when her head is up, her ears are always moving, her head's always moving unless she's alarmed and so a lot of times they'll come in and they key on that and if they don't see that movement then something's wrong that's why i say the elk butt decoy if if you want a decoy but 99.99 percent of the time we're set up ditch the decoy 
Guys, uh, we've spent uh, Chris's year here for a little over an hour, and I appreciate your time, Chris. And uh, Chris, you got any final last thoughts? Uh, no, just everybody, you're, you're, you're right down to the wire now. It's the last little bit of, of getting things lined out. And for those, I saw more questions coming in, you know, people wanting to know, what about calling like this? What about calling like this? I know it's a selfless plug, but, I mean, geez, oh, Pete, get on the Elk module. It's 25 bucks for three months. You can have it right now. And there's, there's so much information that you can get legitimately right now that's going to change the fundamental success uh, your potential for success so if you're not too late just go rowhuntingresource.com just sign up for the elk module just get the 25 dollars one it's easy and then jump it just start a behavior and then jump into the cow vocalizations and then just take it step by step we've got a lot of video content in there yes but you can get a lot of information very very quickly and you're going to understand why I I don't necessarily play to testosterone. And it will answer so many people's questions. So just seriously. And then, and then yeah, we can ask Jay questions, ask me questions or whatever, privately, DM, whatever you want. We'll answer them what we can. But, yeah, you've got time. You have time. So jump in there and dig it apart. Awesome. God bless everyone. Take care. All right, brother. Thanks, man.